Another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This is part two of my interview with Danny Quinn, the head of maths at Michaela Community School. Now, before we go any further, I feel I must clear a few things up. Firstly, I do not receive any money, gifts or products or anything like that for having particular guests on the show, as has been claimed by some. Although, if representatives from Adidas, Apple or Caribbean Cruises would like to be interviewed, then those rules could easily be changed. Likewise, I am not under any pressure whatsoever from anyone to have particular guests on the show. I choose who I find interesting and who I hope my listeners will also find interesting. Secondly, if you disagree with what I say or what my guests say, then that is absolutely fine. In fact, I encourage it. If you choose to air your disagreements on Twitter, copying in the likes of Ofsted, Nick Gibb, the NSPCC, the DFE and the Christian Society, then that is also fine. It is your right after all. But if you make personal insults towards my guests who have given up hours of their free time, or tell me, as two people did, to go to hell, then I am unlikely to engage in debate with you. Whenever I say I will see you on the other side just before I introduce each guest, I didn't quite expect the other side to be interpreted as the fiery gates of the underworld. I do these podcasts because they make me think about my own practice, learn things, strive to get better, and because I enjoy the conversations with some of my heroes. If you want to debate, then brilliant. Just try not to be a dick about it. Anyway, on to the show. Now, this interview is essentially split up into three sections. Section one wasn't really supposed to be a section at all, more of a quick way to introduce this interview, but it led us down some unexpected and fascinating territory. I asked Danny what it's like to be head of maths in arguably the most scrutinized school in the country. Why does she feel internal scrutiny more than external scrutiny? And why is this a good thing? Why are staff at Michaela so honest in their evaluations of each other, both in and out of lessons? And I found this bit fascinating, and I'm sure the haters will have a field day with this one. And how do Danny and Michaela staff as a whole react to something so public like Anglegate? Section two is the big one, behavior at Michaela. What is the philosophy underpinning the behavior policy at Michaela? How does the system of merits and demerits work? On the spot, we invent the game, Merit, Demerit, Nothing or Impossible at Michaela. I need to work on that title a little bit before I sell it to Anton Deck for millions. But we use this game to see how common student behaviours will be dealt with at Michaela. How does the policy of no exceptions or no excuses work when faced with students with particularly difficult circumstances? How do students who join the school mid-year cope with such a shift in culture and practice? And then finally, section three returns to the topic of teaching mathematics. How do drills in maths lessons work at Michaela? How does Danny prevent students valuing speed ahead of accuracy? How does Danny decide which tricks or shortcuts are acceptable to be used in drills and which are not? We dig deeper into teaching the how before the why. And this is something that I am absolutely fascinated about at the moment. 
And then, after getting on so well over two podcasts and over six hours of conversation, it all falls apart when Danny and I clash on the use of mistakes and misconceptions during explicit instruction. Should students be confronted with, uh, with common incorrect procedures in a bid to convince them why they are wrong, or does this do them more harm than good? You'll have to stick around to the end to find out. Now, you know what I'm going to say here. I think this is a fascinating conversation. Whether you agree or not with what Danny says and the philosophies and practices at Michaela as a whole, two things remain unequivocally true. First, you cannot fault Danny's enthusiasm, passion and dedication to what she believes in. And secondly, I guarantee it will make you think. So if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, leave a review on iTunes if you have time, and feel free to give me a shout out on Twitter where I am at Mr. Barton Maths. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Danny Quinn part two. I loved every second of this conversation and I really hope you do too. As ever, and interpret this however you want, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Danny. So, firstly, uh, welcome back to the podcast, and, and thanks thank th- thanks for joining us again. I really appreciate it. And I want to start off uh, just on a on a bit of a kind of broad level here, but I, I just want to know what it's like being head of maths in arguably the most scrutinised school in the country. Can you just kind of paint a bit of a picture for us there? Um, so, I think uh, setting aside the head of maths bit, or what I think is interesting is with your question is that obviously there's a lot of external scrutiny. Some of it, you know, is, is challenge, which is really, really valuable. And we're very, in some ways, you know, the attention that the school generates or gets maybe uh, is highly valuable because you get challenge from people who have a lot to offer. And some of it um, is, I guess I wouldn't call it scrutiny, I'd call it like disruptive or destructive. Um, yes. Uh, I don't even say use of rules, destructive use of systems and bureaucracies, if that makes sense. Yes. So that I can't speak about with great information or detail, but I sort of that there are two types of attention that you can get, uh, both both of which I suppose you could call negative attention in that uh, it's not telling you, oh, you're so wonderful and perfect. <laughs> um, but one of them is a very good thing because it allows you to be constantly challenged and constantly improve and be more robust. And that's obviously excellent. And one is just... Um, system use as a way of frustrating uh, as a way to frustrate progress if that makes sense um so those two things exist um but almost from a the point of view of for me within the school because so little of that would affect me because the slt protect the ordinary teachers so much from the attention the school gets in terms of whether it's um uh critical people who are not involved in education or not involved in the school or parents who are difficult say i mean obviously parents can be having a difficult time but a parent who's very very difficult it's just immediately once a parent has become clear that they are very difficult to work with they just go on the list that only SLT will will talk with that parent or regularly yes. meet with them so teachers are very protected from <laughs> this will sound funny we're protected from difficult adults and by which um by which I don't mean adults who are challenging because they have challenging things to say or have challenging circumstances I mean cha- uh, adults who aren't seeking to have a productive relationship I guess would be a way of describing it. We'll have plenty of challenging visitors who, who 
support the goals of the school. They maybe don't agree with how we're doing. They support the goals around opportunities for children and so on. And we wouldn't need to be any shielding from that because that's just robust and exciting debate. Um, but almost within the school, I'd say sometimes it makes me laugh to think, to think that you're saying the school's very scrutinised or a lot of accountability because it's nothing compared to how much scrutiny accountability there is in the school, by which I don't mean um, tick box accountability or tick box scrutiny, almost the opposite. It's very broad brush and constant and that's really really good it's something that some people in here and think oh my gosh i would hate to work there and that's fine and they probably would hate it it's a school where and i mean and so i'm going to describe some things that sound intense but um i think they're the right thing to do for example if you're a minute late to duty you will get a message saying you're a minute late to your duty um, <laughs> usually from Catherine, um <laughs> or cc'ing her in which obviously sounds like oh my gosh, is this like a nanny step? I mean, so that's just one example, but it'd be like that for anything. Um, things like um, you will be, you could be leading. And so I'm, I'm, I'm painting negative pictures sure. right now more to give a sense of, I guess, the scrutiny or accountability side is, uh, let's say you were leading lunch and you were perhaps a little bit lackluster um, or maybe you were slightly awkward in the way you were encouraging. Let's say a child gave a really rubbish appreciation at the end of lunch. So you have to kind of combat that because they've just been a bit, pants in front of 200 people so you can't just let it you know you need to give some feedback to child say that wasn't really a good enough what's, standard sorry danny what's, an, a, what's keep... an appreciation oh, God, sorry this is a bad example <laughs> oh no he's good no <laughs> i know i should have chosen a different example so i'm gonna go off on a tangent i'll describe this more later because it is um i imagine it's very interesting to people um at the end of lunch because they have it in they're in like a seating plan they're on tables of six and they serve each other and they have conversations it's really lovely it's like we call it family lunch because it's like the way a conventionally a family would sit together and at the end of lunch there's five minutes to give appreciation so you might say things like i'd like to appreciate um sahar because she helped me this morning with my to quiz me in my french and i did really well in my quiz because we had two claps for sahar on two one two and then everyone claps for sahar and that's really nice or it might be i'd like to appreciate mr eastman because he he really challenged me to work harder he he encouraged me to to improve the style of my essays by doing blah 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 and he's a history teacher and i've really improved because of it two claps for mr eastman on two one two so they're practicing you know, uh, both public speaking, having a gr uh, grateful mindset, as well as a gratuitous, I mean, grateful, <laughs> a gracious and grateful mindset. Um, and they are learning to express gratitude all the, you know, as a normal part of daily life and to get over that fear of talking in front of each other. And for me, normal to be positive in front, in, in a big group. Right. So obviously in a big group, it's very easy to tend towards being a bit negative because it's kind of cool when you're a kid to be negative. Um, so sometimes a kid will give an appreciation that's just a bit pants. Like they want to plan what they're going to say or they lose track of it or they mumble. I mean, a big thing will be children don't really want to speak loud enough yes. for 200 people to hear them, even though as teachers and really, I mean, if you come across an adult who won't do that, you just, you think, what is wrong with you? Um, like, come on, just speak properly. So we, you know, we must teach the children to do that because adults who don't speak and project uh, come across as, I suppose, weak or lacking in confidence or lacking conviction. So you don't want the children to be uh, to have that when they're older. So you need to give them feedback where all the other children have heard someone be a bit pants. So you do have to challenge that to say, oh, next time, um, uh, Musa, it was very difficult to hear that next time you need to be much louder, plan what you're going to say so you're confident and say it loudly. So um, let's say so let's say you've challenged that so obviously you're trying to negotiate that carefully so that you keep a positive feeling in lunch the child yes. doesn't feel humiliated but you do need to challenge them they do need to know it wasn't good enough because you don't want to like I mean, even these premises i'm sure people would disagree with um and the and for the other children to hear that feedback so they think oh that wasn't good enough i need to make sure i'm not done at that standard i need to be at a higher standard yes. than that so you're giving feedback for the whole room to learn from 
Uh, and a teacher might do it in a way that it ends up being accidentally just a bit too awkward or a bit too negative or not really, or they don't quite attack the issue at hand, attack strong would be, you know, um, go for the issue at hand, and you'll immediately get an email or someone, so to you, or even just appear, uh, another colleague will be saying, the way you did that was a bit awkward, next time do blah, blah, blah. So the, the, the reason I was giving that example is to say, if you do anything, oh, I mean, I wish I could choose my language more finely. If you do anything that's not as good as it could be, you will yes. be told immediately and you'll be expected to do it better next time. Flipping um, And that, so, that is from, could be SLT, could be just a fellow colleague. Really, um, like even like Hintai, for example, he's uh, one of my, uh, one of the teachers, about say my, I don't mean like he's in the maths department. Uh, he joined this year and just last week. So he's a co-tutor. So he's one of the two tutors for Nine Zeus who are, I love them, but by Michaela's standards, they're very naughty. And so he sees them every day with their tutor, Olivia, who's an exceptional teacher, who has a great relationship with kids and is the most no-nonsense teacher you'll ever get. So he sees them with her every day and how perfect they are. And he passed my room and I was writing something on the board and um, he he passed the room and he came in and said, I'll, say his trust name, uh, I'll, I'll use Musa as a name for the yeah, whole thing. Sure. Musa. Uh, Musa, that's a demerit. Miss Quinn just, you know, Musa, was, uh, Musa turned around while you were right on the board. And I was like, oh, thank you so much, Mr. Ting. Puts demerit on. Um, which even in that, he's he is basically criticizing me to an extent in front of all the children. But but it's not a criticism. I need to know that's happening because I, it mustn't be happening. The children need to be focused on what I'm writing or saying or whatever. And he shouldn't be seeking opportunities to distract himself. But then after the lesson, he and I came back and said, just so you know, that never happens when Olivia writes on the board. And he wasn't trying to say, therefore, you're crap, Danny. He's saying this is a, this standard is achievable and this isn't so within the school culture someone who's who i'm line managing has no qualms saying you weren't good enough in that moment that we didn't have to frame it like that because we so share the goal of excellent behavior that enables learning and came back to later tell me i mean if you're taking it in the wrong mindset it would feel like it's a twist of the knife if you're taking the right mindset it's something that urges you on which is I know that what I'm saying is true because I've seen Olivia do it day in, day out, unfailingly get the class to be perfect. And so he's telling me that so that I know that it's totally possible to achieve that with them. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Sorry, go on. No, I'm just saying, flipping heck, Danny, because this, I'm I'm just just straight away seeing the contrast to to what happens in in most schools here. I I think that, I mean, we're not even touching the kids' behaviour here. I mean, we'll we'll get on to to, the the set, well, the the kind of staff behaviour in a way. And there's often in schools, and again, I'm generalising here, but there's, a kind of reluctance to to criticize um and even in even in observations um if if i see something that i I disagree with i'll think so so carefully about how i'm going to word this and it's almost like two stars and a wish or something like that i've got to do with staff i've got to find the positive 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 and then find a way to kind of bring in this kind of constructive criticism or whatever you want to call it so i guess my question is like was this i mean was this completely different to how it was in your previous school and and was it a shock and if it wasn't a shock for you have you seen other teachers who think flipping egg that is something i've never seen before this this way of kind of criticizing and and criticizing is probably not the right word but like how how does staff cope and how do you prepare staff for such a cultural change so it's funny um it's it is a shock because it's so and I don't even think it's um a unique to British people thing. I think it is though it's probably particularly so for British people is 
I think it's almost like the antithesis of passive aggression in that <laughs> you can't have a positive culture or no, a better way is Catherine really, really, really celebrates candor as something that you can't have a positive, honest culture with each other unless you're candid with each other. And if you've got a huge goal, which the goal that every school has, though Catherine wants to actually achieve it, which is every child goes to a really good university and transforms it and has the, all the opportunities that every teacher at Michaela has had, that, that, that there be no difference in the life opportunities of children and the adults who teach them, um, which is when you're teaching challenging intake, which I'm sure, you know, the majority of your listeners must be doing, because it describes the majority of children, um, that is an enormous and daunting goal. I mean, it's even hard in nice suburbs to actually get all the children to fulfill their potential. Um, from what I've seen, it's yes. just hard to get the children. Um, that you can't achieve exceptional things unless you are completely honest about the situation that you're facing and why you're underperforming. I think about any of my friends in business uh, who are, you know, in... Um, um, who, who work in any sort of business setting and they're very clear that honesty about where things are is what's key about achieving thing about achievement and then also for everyone must be brilliant and I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say and I don't mean brilliant like oh are they Ofsted outstanding I mean I think probably the majority of listeners reject that idea so think that well I hope the majority of listeners think that lessons aren't a gradable thing so I know we've talked about that in great depth but you can't do that if you have a single week link everyone needs to be the best they can be all the time and getting better all the time and you can't you need every lesson to be really, really good. You, like, the kids have so little time before they're going to be examined. You're trying to start from many of them having had, I mean, some of them have had great primary experiences, but many of them have had inadequate primary experiences to achieve that goal of great GCSEs and great A-levels. It's always urgent. Everyone needs to be the best they can be, and they need yes. to be open to that, and they need to see that as more important than how they feel. And when I say how you feel is... Um, a really interesting book by a man called Daniel Pink, uh, which Luke Sparks, the head of Dixon's Trinity, introduced all this stuff to. And he, um, and it's very, very interesting. Dan Pink's theory is that to be happy in your work, you need to be paid enough for money to be taken off the table, um, which I think is reasonable to say is true for teachers in that not extra- incredibly well paid compared to similar pe- people with a similar level of professional qualification. But obviously we get great holidays. We get to work with children and, you know, considering all the pleasure there is to be had from the job, if it's the right job for you, I think we can say it's, um, fair pay um, within reason. I don't know. Was I don't have children and things, so it's different for me. Um, but if once you've taken money off the table, the things that Dan Pink argues that make people happy in their work is mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Mastery, getting better at something that matters, i.e., being a really good teacher and team member. Autonomy, are you? Do you have control over how you're improving? And purpose, which is, do you feel you're something serving something bigger than yourself that is going to endure beyond you? Which obviously, as teachers, we feel a great calling to that. And I think the thing that Catherine's really nailed by being so honest with everyone all the time is that sense of mastery. We're constantly, relentlessly getting better at something that desperately matters, which is to have a high, high-performing school. So, in the moment that you um, don't get something right, you think, oh, and you're annoyed, but. If you found out that for a month someone had been mulling over how to tell yes. you, that'd be worse. You just spent a month doing it wrong. Even something tiny is uh, one of the SLT came into my room two days ago and said, and they were being sweet about it, but actually she probably didn't even need to be a sweet sheet. I closed the door and said, oh, this is really awkward, but just so you know, <laughs> your dress is too short. And actually she, I mean, um, she probably didn't even say, oh, this is awkward. She's just being nice. But actually 
and obviously my mum was like, oh God, that's so embarrassing. And I went and looked, because I don't have a full length, I went and looked in the full length mirror in the bathroom and thought, oh my gosh, it is too short. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't bend down. But if she hadn't told me, I would have eventually found out when some children snickered or I'd have found out that everyone had been privately gossiping, like, oh, Daniel always wears clothes, it's far too short. You know, <laughs> because someone was just immediately honest with me as soon as they noticed, it could immediately be fixed. Um, which was brilliant. Which so even that's like a tiny thing because it's that's obviously relatively impersonal because it's just clothes. But it makes you trust people more because now I think that I mean I already did trust this particular SLT member anyway. But I now I mean it just adds to my trust because I know that as soon as they see something's not right, they will tell me. Which means if they say nothing, I know that they think I'm doing the best I can and that I'm performing at the right level. Like we almost say when I'm in lessons with the math teachers, a lot of the time I've got nothing to say because everything's a hygiene. Everything is as good as they can make it within the framework we're working in until we think of a better way to just change whole strategies, for example, um, or to inspire the children more or whatever. We expect a really high level performance, so it's just normal to be there, that every lesson is well prepared, that you're inspiring the children, you're helping them understand, you're really challenging them, getting them to work as hard as they possibly can, making them want to work hard that night, and so on. And if that's normal, you don't need lots of praise and adulation I mean, it, you know, praise feels nice but someone um joked about it saying i feel like i'm a monkey to circus i really would just like people to praise me but then i realized how ridiculous that is that i want praise for doing my job and there you know and that's something that actually you could get over the ego of needing to be praised for doing what you're meant to do anyway in the same way like that eddie murphy thing where he's saying you know i hate people who say i look after my kids you're supposed to look after your kids and she's been like <laughs> Well, no one praises me for coming to school every day. You're supposed to come to school all the time every day. You know, you don't need praise for doing what your job is, but you do need feedback to do really, really well at your job, if that makes sense. And so the satisfaction comes from knowing you're getting better all the time. Does that make so? It does. I mean, obviously, there's the praise and the Catherine will say all the time. She's so proud of the team and how hard everyone's working and what we're achieving. We'll constantly share stories that affirm us around the children's achievement, and we know that those things are only happening. I say achievement are both meaning character and behaviour as well as academically, and that's the affirmation, the praise, not. Oh, Craig, thank you so much for doing your best for the kids every day. Like, yes, I'll say that to the math team because I'm so proud of them and I do think they're brilliant, but. Actually, the affirmation is day in, day out, the kids working really hard and being really bought in. That is your praise, as in it is your results. Like we don't think Mark Zuckerberg needs someone going, oh, well done, Mark. Lots of people are enjoying Facebook. His praise is lots of people are enjoying Facebook, for example, and using his platform or things like that. Does that sound it crazy? It does. No, no, not at all. It's, it sounds different, but, but di- yeah. different is <laughs> brilliant. Um, can I ask on, on that? Because... Um, is it important in Michaela for for students to see staff? And again, I'm going to use the word criticise, but it's it's not the right word. But is it important for students to see staff kind of criticise and challenge other staff in front of them? Or is this something that gets done just staff to staff with no mm-hmm. students around, if that makes sense? Um, it depends on the thing. So sometimes in lessons, so... Um, it depends, because obviously there's extent to which you need to have not infallibility for the children, because of course yes. you're human, you don't want to portray, that, that's unhelpful. We say that we're referees. We, I mean, what we portray to the children is that we're referees. Referees make mistakes, but play is impossible without referees, and referees are human. Yes. Teaching, te- your teaching, your learning is impossible without teachers, and what we are humans will make mistakes, but just like you buy into the referee and accept it over time, mistakes are ironed out. You must accept that with us as teachers. You need to accept that with us as teachers as well. There'd be some things like... Um, you want to have this facade of total competence in front of the children at all times so that they have high levels of faith because in ways that we don't think about, 
the children actually have incredibly high expectations of us that we don't we like um something i find interesting is how people who have uh for example a tendency to depression or to anxiety when you're in front of the children you just can't show any of it yes. or even for example my uh I, I, your people have had really awful things happen like uh divorces or the loss of a loved one in front of the children not only do you know you mustn't show it you almost can't because you are your best self for them all the time so we do want them to think they're always seeing the best of us so some things we wouldn't say in front of them if we're criticizing each other because we want the children to think they're always getting the best possible version of every adult so we don't want so we try to portray that to them and to not break the illusion that they like a, a good illusion that they do enjoy but things where um, I might teach a lesson and then get feedback from someone saying the way you did this didn't work or you should try this instead. I'll say, oh, Mr. Kendall's watching the lesson and he made a suggestion. I think that's going to be much better and I'm going to do X, Y, Z that he suggested or I watched Miss Smith's lesson with nine to meter and she did this a way better way so I shouldn't have taught you the way I did yesterday. I'm going to show you now Miss Smith's way today. So those kind of things where showing them that we are improving and reflecting because of things people have said or that we've seen, we would... Yes. I mean, depending, like, you don't want to waste time, but we do want to convey to them that. And we talk to them a lot about the effort we've made and the effort we put into things for them and talking about that being about improving and getting people's advice and listening to what people have said to us and so on. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. A flipping heck. No, this, no, this, is, this is good, Danny. And I just, just wanted to ask, you, you've talked a lot there about kind of the, the internal scrutiny. I'm wondering if, just to refer to a specific incident. So at the time of recording this, we're recording this uh, just, just at the very end of April. A few months ago, there was the whole thing with, I mean, on Twitter, it was Anglegate with the, <laughs> with the, with the, with the, the Circle Theorems blog post. Um, and it, it all kicked off with people saying that the angles aren't looking the right size and quoting research left right and center what i'm interested therein is when something public happens like that how do how does staff at michaela react and is it is it something that's directed from catherine do you get called together in a meeting and saying this is our kind of public response or does it just get shrugged off what happens when well if we take that well what was the reaction to to anglegate um we, we <laughs> um bemused because it didn't matter, um, basically, that I thought it was so funny how much heat and light it generated without having any particular substance. I guess the diagrams were accurate. Um, I just, I, I was just, a, it was so inconsequential for the experience that the children had, both in terms of their safety and their well-being was obviously yes. no way compromised. Their development as people was in no way compromised. At the broad level, they are mathematically in my opinion, not compromised. They're getting really, really, really good results so far. And we use the um, the GL assessments to do, um, as Daisy described it, you know, you're trying to get um, benchmark, or yes. the word she used, you know, benchmark type data. It's very, very strong. We use internal stuff. We've tried GCC past papers as well as running exams. Everything is reassuring me that mathematically the children are making uh, fantastic progress, including, you know, um, with higher progress for, for example, people pre children and so on, though we don't measure the children in those ways, but just incidentally. Yes. Um, so given all the robust positive things I have, that that's why I say it's very funny that some things generate a lot of heat and light with that substance. I think the reason that, I mean, stuff like that, we saw it and we were like, oh, that's annoying. Some of those diagrams are quite right or whatever. But some of these things we do quickly because trying to produce our own textbooks as we're going is incredibly time consuming. Oh, so yeah. there's some time. So we will make 
mistakes. And sometimes we'll have a question we have for the class who go, oh, you're nine, cross out question 18, it's got a mistake. <laughs> and the kids go, okay, and they don't care. And sometimes, uh, I can't remember, I gave them a construction a while ago, and they all had their hands up saying, this is impossible. And there's like, and I was like, oh my gosh, it is an impossible construction. Well done. And <laughs> merits for everyone has realized. And like, I mean, just but like we make, I think we, I find it funny because of course teachers make mistakes in front of the kids all the time. We all, I mean, Cho Morgan was such a lovely post about it. And I think it's like everything. Or Catherine will say, some things happen both with getting negative feedback at school. You pick yourself up. You move on and you just think, OK, well, within reason where it won't stop us actually getting our resources produced, we'll make our diagrams better. And if we can't, we'll move on. Is everything adequate to teach with? Yep. Move on. <laughs> so, I, I guess I guess what I'm interested in is does because you, you wouldn't get that. If, if, if that was another teacher in another school, they would put the post up and possibly one or two people in the comments might kindly say, um, I think your diagrams are a bit wrong um, oh, yeah, like, and, and engage in an interesting debate. But I guess my point is that that doesn't tend to happen with Michaela stuff. It happens to, to, to a certain extent. You get people and I know you're very willing to engage in, in debate. But it, there is a, a, a significant number of people who are just waiting. I, I get the feeling anyway, who are just waiting to pounce on anything that Michaela does and, and, and essentially tear it apart. And I just wonder, does that does that affect you as a person and as a head of department and does it affect your staff and does the school take any steps to protect you from that if, if that makes sense um yes in that we have people who it's recommended that we block and so, so something that's quite funny is i know that um the last podcast uh, i mean obviously most of your podcasts get uh correctly um get universally very very positive reviews and your podcast is incredibly appreciated by lots of people i know that the one the last one with me was much more divisive um <laughs> which is fine yeah. and i don't we don't expect everyone to agree with it because obviously it's the insofar as you could say that oh there's a liberal consensus in britain whether or not we think that's true obviously michaela stands very apart from the broadish liberal consensus in schools so of course it's like and I, i'm my beliefs are very different to the beliefs i had as a, as a person when i joined the school um i am more small c conservative my beliefs i am more focused on personal responsibility i am less interested in identity politics i mean lots of things about my beliefs have changed but they've changed because the evidence and the arguments i'm being presented with have changed and lots and we'll get lots of the positive challenge of friendly criticism i've had several times i mean he's a man with extraordinary eye for detail Stuart locke um seems to notice every mistake i'm making a post and he always tells me and i really appreciate it. i mean how he has such an eye for detail i don't know and so i totally appreciate those and the people who want to pounce broadly from what i i, I don't know it i mean who, who knows the details of them they're people i don't I've blocked anyway on Twitter, so I don't see most of that negativity. So I think you were getting it full in the face after you published <laughs> the podcast. I didn't realize any of it had happened until you mentioned in some tweets, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I went to look, I was like, oh, goodness, poor Craig, because, of course, I hadn't seen any of it. So I was just in happy, blissful ignorance <laughs> until you, <laughs> you mentioned. And um, we're engaged in a project that's deep to our hearts and that really, 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 really care about. We can't let go or be flippant in argument or not care about what we say because the project is real for us. People who want to be flippant or play or just troll the school can do it for as long as they like and then just drop it as soon as they're bored. So people who want to make malicious claims against the school and have done so, but the ones that didn't have evidence but still had to be processed because they were brought, they can drop it as soon as they like without consequence, but of course we can. So there's a huge imbalance and the imbalance we face is because we care. 
and because we're actually engaged in a good faith project. Um, so, but the most important part of that imbalance is that we have the thing we actually care about. So just like in school, not reacting to negativity as something to be dragged down by, but something to grow from, or recognize the two types of negativity, negativity you can grow from because someone's just telling you how to improve, and negativity that's just trying to drag you down and recognize the difference. And that type you just ignore, and the other type you use it as growth, and neither type takes you down. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, it, it does. And as I say, like I, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but it, yes. I, I, I mean, guess I, it, I mean, I can see you might think this whole section is not worth including. Oh know. no, no, it's, it's it's very worth including. It's it's yeah. I guess I'm just just interested, just because you just don't get this at other schools, and it just it just interests me that it. it I guess I can see it kind of making you stronger, but you, you've got to be a, a, a tight knit group. And, and that's the message I always get when I, whenever I, I speak to people who've been to conferences run by Michaela, that, that staff very much are, I know it's a terrible cliche, but singing from the same hymn sheet, everyone seems <laughs> to be kind of, kind of all together. And I, I guess it, it, stuff like this does make you stronger, right? It makes you all kind of pull together. And the, the thing that I think, even the critics will say of Michaela's staff is rightly or wrongly they all believe in what they're doing and I think you know you can disagree with with the practices there and so on but I don't think you could again correct me if I'm wrong here Danny but I don't think you could work there unless you fully bought into everything that yes I mean from Catherine's point of view the uh within I mean I, I mightn't say the order and I mightn't say the same priorities the um because I've not asked her this question this explicit way, what she's looking for when she looks for staff, probably the, the number one thing, and this is totally binary because the rest can be improved, is do they buy into the, what Michaela is about, by which not just being really enthusiastic about children achieving isn't enough, because you know all teachers have that, is um, more that do you believe that children will achieve through having incredibly high expectations of them by being relentless in those expectations by believing hugely in personal responsibility for you as an adult and them as children, even though they are children, that is the world they are in, they are in a tough world for a lot of them. So actually that means even more that they must take responsibility um, because that's the world they live in and that um, you are unashamed and proud to be teaching a classical liberal curriculum in the sense where I say classical liberal, obviously the word liberal makes it funny, but in the sense that like, for example, Harvard or a lot of um, uh, East Coast US universities are offering a classical liberal education in the sense of um, the the idea of the best that's been thought and said, um, and that those things are really important to you. That's almost, because we've had some really brilliant teachers be at the school who had great teaching, great relationships, everything, but they couldn't buy into that framework around some of those things, which meant they just couldn't be happy in the school. So even though they were great, it just was never going to be the right school for them because of that. Um, and that doesn't make them go to bad or the school, but go to bad. It's about um, buying. It's probably a school that demands more cultural alignment and buying than any other school that I can imagine, Not though I'm sure there are maybe others as well, maybe the Steiner schools and things or some of those as well in the opposite direction. Uh, and then the next two things Catherine's looking for is subject knowledge and the capacity to um, really um, motivate and inspire the children through huge presence and author be authoritative and inspiring with the children. So that doesn't mean loud or um, hyper, but you could do it in lots of ways. But authoritative and inspiring presence, subject knowledge and most of all buy into what the school is probably is all she really cares about. <laughs> Got, got it. And I, I promise last question on this before we move okay. on to on to, to behaviour. Um, you mentioned that um, 
you kind of changed uh, quite a few um, of your views from joining mm-hmm. Michaela. So did, did you find it tough yourself, Danny, when you when you first started there? And what, what in particular was, was kind of the, the, the most difficult thing of, of starting at Michaela for you? Um, I'm trying to think what have been was the most difficult thing with st- I think it's um, not making excuses I think that probably that was the hardest thing was I knew I was joining a school though I because I'd already joined a school that had um, high expectations before by being at Trinity which is a very very you know it's an exceptional school very high performing um, when I say very I mean like really high performing um, I'd already had so much work done on me to improve me that I thought I didn't have far to go but of course <laughs> teachers and McKenna are just so different that even if you're the best teacher ever, you'll come to McHale and still be broken down and built up again. It's a bit like the army. Everyone's, um, like when people are joining, like I, I, I don't know how many times I've told the poor people joining the department next year, like, I just can't tell you enough how much you're going to be told your teaching isn't good enough. You have to prepare for this. <laughs> like, and you have to just get over it now because it doesn't mean we think you're not good. It means that we think you can improve. And, um, and I think it was what I found hard to get used to was when someone said, the way you're doing this doesn't work, do this to stop making an excuse because obviously when if someone if i were to watch your lesson and let's say we've agreed on a goal like we want the children to really quickly do so i'm pick something simple so everyone understands it uh, let's say we've you and i have agreed that a, a goal that's correct is that the children really quickly pass their books out for example and you and i have agreed that you'll always do a little mental math starter because we think you know so we've agreed on that goal and i go and watch your lesson and it doesn't happen the way that we've said it should and I say, Craig, the, you need to improve the lesson by getting the kids to hand out the books faster by doing blah, blah, blah. And you need to make sure you have that starter ready. The natural instinct we all have say, oh, and the reason it wasn't like this yes. is because, because, because. There's no point in that. There's just no point. Either the goal's the wrong goal or you didn't do it. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> either you didn't do it because you didn't care about it enough or didn't prioritize it enough or didn't really understand how, in which case you need to ask for help. Or you just were disorganized or you're not there yet. And you needed this reminder. Or there's actually a fundamental reason you're not doing it that you don't understand why it matters or you just don't agree with it. But you can, oh, well, blah, 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 why, why, why? Unless it's actually, I can't figure out how to make this work. I need your help to get them better at handing the books out. Nobody cares. And I think getting used to that, and I think it was about caring so much about people thought, I, did, I thought, oh, I don't want people to think I'm a bad person. So if I make all these excuses, because they don't even sound like excuses and you're saying they don't not sound like excuses when you receive them. It feels like it's a nice discussion and the sharing and kind of mutual. You're just wasting time. And I know that sounds really crazy and it sounds like um, Michaela, uh, teachers have really impersonal relationships. It's actually the opposite. You're never dancing around things. Like if I say, Craig, you said you're going to get the kids to hand out the books in 30 seconds and it took 50. And you start saying, oh, yeah, it's been really hard because Moose is, you know, la, la, la. Nobody, like, that just doesn't matter. Either there's a problem that you can't figure out how to solve and we talk about it. Or you go, yeah, you're right. I need to do that next time. Like, there's just nothing else to be said. Does that make sense? It does. I'm just thinking I would struggle flipping out. Yeah, it's no, so hard. You, yeah, of course. No, you're absolutely right. And just when you're saying that, yeah, my, my natural response, and I think everybody is, is to to come up with an excuse, and and yeah. it, it may be a good excuse, but but you're right. Like, if if you've agreed on the goal and it's not been met, you've you've got to deal with yeah, either ask for help or change the goal or whatever. Yeah, and and what, what I've what I've loved about this, Danny, as I said, the for me. I've I've done as much research as I could on Michaela. I've got like on my on my uh, I've got like a Insta paper app and I have my own Michaela section. Every blog that's ever been put, I've read, I've read the book uh, and so on. And yet for me, I, 
I never got a sense of how the, the staff interacts. Like, mm-hmm. I knew about the observations mm-hmm. and so on, but... No, this has been, and we've not even, as I say, touched the kind of the behaviour side of things. But yeah, that has been a, a fascinating insight, that Danny. So no, thank you, thank you so much. For that. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's all. I portrayed some of the negative things, but actually, it, ends, it does feel more positive because you stop having non-productive discussions. Yes. So every discussion you have with your colleagues, they're just a fun, relaxed discussion that's just pleasurable. Just in the staff room, we're going to have downtime and just chat, or it's highly productive and they're so energising. Or a sense of your downtime's genuinely downtime, like oh, we're just going to chat about whatever for fun or we're having a highly productive discussion where there's no uh half truths there's no dancing around things it's just really direct so praise means more positive feedback means more and constructive criticism just means constructive criticism that means nothing more and it doesn't mean a breakdown of a relationship so it's not there's less it's it actually it, it's actually a really positive thing even though it's very jarring to get used to Yes, no, absolutely, and and just 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 on that as well, and um, just before we move on to behaviour, I think I can't remember who I discussed this with, whether it was Dylan William or, or someone when when we were talking about observations. And you touched upon it in, in part one of this interview. Just having a clear focus um, for the observation is, is absolutely crucial. And and people observing, just avoiding pathetic things. And I've said that. I'm saying <laughs> pathetic I've said them myself. Like, you need more pace or you need oh, more yeah. chance. Just absolute nonsense. That's yeah, so easy yeah. to just dish out, but you just learn nothing from it. So I think, yeah, I'm going to... What I'm taking away from this, Danny, is I'm going to find it hard, but I'm going to be more honest. When, I, when I'm, <laughs> I'm observing people, I'm going to be more honest and I'm going to force people to be more honest than yeah with me i think yeah that's good thing and this will come into when we talk about just now when we talk about behavior is it's honesty within the framework of being clear why you're honest i'm honest with you because i think you're tough um i think um well i now think this now that i'm at michaela um i think that we take everyone to be much more fragile than they are and obviously there'll be people where there are times in their lives or in their health where you're going to be more sensitive or careful but by and large kids are way less fragile than we treat them and adults are much less fragile or if people think about a lot of the time our fragility is our mindset not our uh, inevitable state in that we look at athletes who high performing athletes day in day out in their trainer being told this isn't good enough this is i mean no they're not just being told this isn't good enough no michaela will just say this isn't good enough that way you did this was not the way that it needs to be do this yes. and athletes are told that day in day out we, and we think of them as strong and high-performing people, like high-performing business execs, high-performing people and all sorts of things are getting constant feedback on how to improve. And that is how, and if they were, if their priority was to be fragile and to protect their egos, yes, they might protect their ego, but they will never achieve. And that in the long term actually doesn't serve your ego and doesn't serve your sense of self because you then don't achieve. We get much, we get a much deeper and more meaningful boost to who we are and a sense of who we, I mean, gratifying boost, but also deep and profound sense of belonging and purpose through actually being better. So if we forget about short term ideas around our fragility and protecting ourselves and engage in long term ideas of how to feel that we are people of worth, then you and share that with each other that I'm saying this because I think you are tough and I think you want to improve then it's about sharing out of actual concern and love, not sharing out of the desire to make others smaller. It's the opposite. It's the desire to build them. Yes. And I, I think the thing, the thing I think a lot of people think of, of Michaela, and I, I made the, I tried to make this point anyway, and in, uh, in, in part one was that, 
I think there's a tendency to dismiss things because you think the whole school's got to buy into it. It's part of a whole school culture. And I think that's true to a certain extent. But things like this, like if I'm listening to this and I'm immediately thinking, as you say, this could be some way that I could improve the way I observe and the way I, I receive mm-hmm. feedback from observations. Now, that could be something on a, on a personal level I do with the people I'm observing and the people who observe me. Or it could be something that, that I try and bring into our maths department. So we have a <laughs> maths department meeting and we say, right, the, from now on, observations are going to change. We're, we're going to move away from these generic, meaningless uh, phrases. We're going to have clear, focused objectives. We're going to be honest with each other for the right reasons and so on. So I think if people are listening to this and thinking, well, that isn't going to work because I don't work at Michaela, I think it is something you can bring in on a smaller scale. And it's not going to be as effective if it's not part of the whole school culture. Mm. But it is something that still could be effective. Does that make sense? I think think it's completely true. And there are other things I do outside of Michaela, um, like things we teach first or even like, things at home like it, I share a house with lots of people we're realizing being honest straight away respectful focused on the goals that you share makes a much more and better atmosphere clearer focus on the clearer focus on the things you actually care about so places where people aren't inducted into the whole culture of Michaela as long as you make clear it means like the Dylan William thing that he said about people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care as long as you've established that mutual thing of we both care about the same thing and I care about you then honesty is appreciated as long as you make it clear you're being honest because you believe in the person, if that makes sense, and you believe in the goal you share. Um, I have found it's been possible. Um, I mean, my, my natural manner with people is very, like, kind of sweet and mumsy and warm, so maybe it's easier for me. Um, I don't I mean, I, I, I'm, potentially things are different because I'm a woman and small and things, but I don't think they have to be because people really appreciate leaders who are really um, tough and have high expectations, not assholes i mean tough like i expect so much of you um we always think about our best bosses are the ones who got the most out of us people do really like people who are honest with them because they care and believe if that makes sense yeah absolutely okay danny right let's move on to the big one because if (laughs) if there's anything that that michaela's known for it's it's the behavior policy so i'm going to open up with the most broad question ever and we'll just see where this takes us um, what's, beha- what's behaviour like at Michaela and how how does the school's culture or policy or whatever bring about that behaviour? Um, I'd say, I mean, based on my limited experience, I've only taught in two other schools and been to a small handful of other schools to observe them or whatever. And from talking to friends who've gone to various schools and, and I mean, obviously because the peer group, the only people I, you know, I came to Britain and immediately my peer group was people who'd gone to Oxford. They'd all mostly had gone to very good schools. Is compared to what they've described as well, I think the behaviour at Michaela has got to be the best in Britain in the by the like, relatively objective criterion of has behaviour ever limited learn, limited your teaching or limited um, the learning of others. I can't think of a time when a child who's wanted to learn has been stopped from learning because of behaviour in Michaela. Does that, so that's what I'm trying to give that almost first because I think that's a relatively objective thing to describe. Um, so that obviously sounds uh, very cold, uh, <laughs> but I'm more trying to give that because that's um, that's the standard I'd see it as in that I've never not been able to te- I've never not been able to teach because of a child's behaviour. I've never not been able to teach the lesson I wanted to teach because behaviour. I mean, sometimes you can't teach the lesson you want to teach because the children don't understand what you're trying to teach them. <laughs> and like, but that's just, you know, that's just being a teacher. Um, and that's exciting and interesting. Um, and a child who's wanted to learn 
has never been stopped from getting as much out of the lesson as the teacher could offer because of anybody else in the room. Um, I mean, that, I mean, is, straight, straight off, Danny, that is a huge shout. That 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 is massive. Yeah, because yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm, like an, I'm, an I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> I, I'm thinking to. I mean, I've been teaching for twelve years now. I can't even point to a, a, a possibly a day, but definitely not a yeah. week where, um, or God, not even close to a week where I could have said anything remotely like that. And I'm even talking about some classes, like I I had a year 11 class um, two years ago now, um, who were the best class I have ever taught in my entire life, just for the kind of personality. And I just, it was an absolute pleasure. I would have, I would have paid to teach them. They were, they were, they were unbelievable, but they were still at least five, 10 minutes um, in every 50 minute lesson where my teaching was not as effective as it could be. The kids' learning was not as good um, as it could be because a couple of lads were talking away or something like that or somebody put me off or asked a stupid question and so on. Yeah, but I, yeah. I, was, I was all right with that. Like I, it frustrated me a little bit, but I thought, that's just teaching. That, that, is, yeah. that is what and, kids and, are And like. we think, oh, that's just teenagers. That's exactly, sure. exactly, yeah. exactly. So you, you've hooked me in here, Danny. So, <laughs> um, yeah, just, just talk to me. Just, just keep talking to it. Talk to me a little bit more about this. So uh, how have you got... How have you got it to, to that that stage? Um, so I suppose um, I'll do, or I'll say this more high level thing, and then possibly go into giving you some examples. So I think maybe through examples sure. of behaviour, you might get a bigger, a better picture. Because I've also described the children better. Because um, despite how I've just described it, it's incre- I also find it one of the warmest, most kind and positive environments I've ever been in, both with, whether with adults or with children. Um, it's like a gladdening, heartening experience teaching the children as well and fun and funny as well um, is an additional thing I'd say and this is how Catherine approaches it is provided the children are doing what we ask to do we make it very obvious and clear to them how to do what we ask to do almost anything where the children aren't at the best they could be it's the teacher not the children which obviously sounds almost like the nightmare thing where you know, where people say, well, as long as you plan properly, behavior <laughs> yes. should never be a problem, and which I just think is total BS. Um, in, like, plenty of the teachers at my school who have wonderful behavior in their lessons and are teaching loads and have a great time, put me back in a, put me, I say back, I, I was very lucky. I was when a, The school I was in had loads of brilliant, my teacher was placed in school where I was three years, had loads of great things, so I don't even mean that. But put me in other schools I've visited or been to where, it is poorly led. Everything, you know, things are just so subpar. Um, I would have to go back to cajoling, excuse making, encouraging them, accepting things, ignoring things. I mean, because you just cannot survive otherwise. And the children wouldn't even know, like, the, the battles would be impossible. You're being criticised for having high expectations by the standard I'm saying that high expectations are and so on. So, um, it is very much the school enables it to happen. It's not the individual teacher. It's not about shining stars or any of those things. It's um, any time we see in one class, this class may be slightly slower to hand the books out or slightly less attentive. The teacher is expecting slightly less or being slightly less organized. So I know that, for example, the difference between the example I've given is Olivia, the head of science, all the difference between like the children are marginally better behaved for her than for me because she is working harder on behaviour and she does have higher expectations than me and she is more organised about it and more relentless about it and more conviction about behaviour than I have. So I lose out. But it is completely me, because we teach the same children. So it is me is the difference rather than the children and I need to just commit harder and work harder on... I mean, so any, anyone who'd come to visit Michaela and watch my lessons all day would think it's hilarious that I'm saying there's something subpar about behaviour in the room. I'm comparing myself to... Uh, 
the next standard up. And I'm, I picked a Livius one example that you know, most of the teachers in school they'll be true for. Um, um, so I'd say that it's the, t- the teachers being totally consistent to a vision that we've agreed on and a set of rules and norms and cultures we've agreed and a culture we've agreed on is why it happens. So in terms of, t- so to give an example of um, what it looks like day to day is, um, so one of the teachers, Tom, one of the math teachers related this because I'm, for my form groups, obviously, he, I'm always asking how they're doing. Rah, rah, rah. And so two boys, so we'll call them A and B, had both, one of them had gotten um, a demerit because he'd um, turned around in the lesson. Then he got a second demerit because he called out, and by McKenna's standards, so this is a way that he often calls out, is he said, sir, as he put his hand up, which obviously isn't the same thing as calling out the answer, but it is calling out in that it is a disruptive sound in the lesson and is basically you demanding to be listened to the moment you've spoken like why'd you bother putting your hand up you're just going to say sir and start saying your thing so he'd gotten two demerits which meant boy a had a detention his reaction and tom's very you know the first one says uh, a that's a detention oh no that's a demerit we don't turn around lessons and he doesn't need to say anything else because he and he and the boy both understand and know that you shouldn't turn around lessons they know the reason why and I mean, I, i'm informed to this boy we both, everyone knows that he knows why. He's just got a bad habit. He turns around a lot and he must break that habit. It's important for him to do that and for his classmates that he doesn't disturb them. And the second demerit, he is still in a bad habit that as he puts his hand up, if he's very excited to say something, he'll say, sir, and that interrupts the lesson. So, so again, Tom would have just said, A, that's a demerit. We don't call out when we put our hands up. As you know, there's a detention. Just make sure the child's clear they've got a detention. Um, and so very, very quick Um I haven't even called, called it an admonishment, just a clear spelling out of what the situation was, reminding him of the expectations, just to make sure he knows why, and he does know why. And Tom described that for the rest of the lesson, the boy was absolutely killing himself to work hard, uh, slanting, so S is for sit or straight, L is for listen, A is for answer questions, N is for never interrupt, T is for track the teacher. So slanting us in, sitting up really straight, really attentive, really hardworking, working furiously for the rest of the lesson, which meant he got a merit. And later at the end of the day, I was saying, A, I'm so disappointed you got detention, but I'm really proud. Mr. Kendall told me how much you reacted really well. You took the detention as a reminder to improve and you showed that you understood that because you worked so hard for the rest of the lesson. You're a really good role model of how to react to detention. Well done. And he's like, oh, and he's happy that he's being told this. And he goes off to his detention with a very positive mind frame. I mean, detention just means he's going to spend time revising. So it's something that children in other schools pay for um, in the private sector. But another one of his peers in the same class, B, had gotten a demerit also, I think, turning around or something like that. And then he got a second one because Tom said, on your whiteboards, show me four different numbers that have a mean of eight. And he immediately said, sir, do they have to be different? And it was very, very clear he said it. And Tom said even though several children actually went, like, made the, the Ugh, face, like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, the, the close to an eye roll, like, what the heck is wrong with this kid face? And this boy does this a lot as an attention-seeking thing. He likes to send his own voice that Tom said. B, you knew, heard the question, and if you or you weren't listening, both either you've asked a pointless question that you know is pointless, or you weren't listening when you knew I was saying the question itself, so you've wasted time, so that's the second demerit. And the boy then had, like, a sulky demeanour for the rest of the lesson. So he didn't full-on sulk. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. But he was like acting sad for the rest yes. of the lesson and informed time I told him that I thought he was 
really, really let us, the whole form down. He's really, and um, you know, said, I'm on duty after school at the bus stop. I said, yesterday you had a detention. So this is a conversation on Friday. On Thursday, you had detention. You came out of the bus stop with a really sulky face. And actually, um, uh, just to make up a name for her, um, D in your age, she had to tell you that, you know, just get over it. It's just a detention. It's a chance to learn. And then this kid was actually really catchy. She's like, anyway, you failed one of your quizzes. It's good you had time to revise. I was like, you tell them, kid. <laughs> Some of the time, the kids are so blunt with each other. Uh, so I was saying, like, yesterday at the bus stop, you were being very self-pitying about your detention. Instead of seeing it as a chance to learn and, and a positive thing to learn about, behavior, to improve your behavior and to see it as a great chance to focus on revision. You had a, a very self-pitying attitude. And now today for Mr. Kendall, I hear you're still being self-pitying. You know, A, got a detention, and he was a role model of how to deal with the detention and how to learn from it. Instead, you got detention, and all you could think about was feeling sorry for yourself and working less hard in the lesson and giving less effort. I'm so disappointed in you that you get a setback and drag yourself down instead of getting a setback and drag, pull yourself up. Um, so... And afterwards, I talked more to him and he's like, yes, I'll try to be more like him next time and make it a big deal about how the first boy was a role model. The other kids are like nodding along and things. So that's um, those are ways you can get a detention. And uh, go, you need to re react to the detention the right way. So the interesting thing there is also that we make a really, really big deal in the school about reactions. And something we see is really important for the children, which is to have good reactions, which is not to say that the teacher is right all the time. Teachers make mistakes and not to say that they... Um, should never tell us we've made mistakes and things, is that when something doesn't go your way in the moment, that you don't react in an unprofessional way, to which I mean, uh, let's, we try to push for adult standards of expectation, not because we think they're adults yet, but we think because we are training them to be professional, mature adults. So if you were in, for example, um, say you go to Starbucks and you say, can I have... Um, uh, can I have blah, blah, blah. And they say, yeah, what's your name? And you say, Craig. And they and they start writing Greg. And you say, oh, no, no, it's Craig. You expect them to go, oh, yep, sorry, and fix it. If they went, ugh, or <laughs> had a bad reaction. Because at the lowest level, it's a little bit annoying because they might be thinking, who cares? You're going to get your coffee anyway, Greg. Um, <laughs> I mean, and maybe they're right. But also, like, who cares? Their reaction makes it worse and makes affects their mindset and their happiness. Because if they're the sort of person who goes, ugh, at that they're a less happy person but also you're a less happy person because you've now just had a negative reaction or a negative experience and they also seem a bit mad like they seem a bit ludicrous to you you're like what's your problem all i did was tell you my name or even um um so learning to have positive reactions to things not going exactly the way you want we see is really important for children both for them becoming mature professional adults but also for the atmosphere in the class and the atmosphere in the school to be more positive because people who people who indulge in their first negative reaction are really difficult to be around if you think about in your department uh, most people will know that there's someone who you're giving out tasks or you're saying can we all do blah and one person just immediately is like oh, or just immediately being negative or giving their first negative reaction and they're just such a drain to be around. Yes. Um, and we talk to children all the time. There are people who are radiators and people who are drains, people who radiate heat and positivity, people who are drains and they suck the heat and the life out of the room. And um, when people give in to their first negative reaction, it's often wrong and possibly irrational or at least, you know, childish and indulgent, and which we all have because we're humans and that's fine. But it's not, it's rarely productive. If um, even something like, let's say, 
Catherine in a staff meeting said, uh, Danny, can you do blah, blah, blah? And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I'm not going to have time to do blah, or I don't think it's fair you're asking me to do blah. The, the worst thing I could do is go, oh, for, you know, start yeah. reacting, saying, well, you've already given me too much to do, <laughs> or even if I'm right, I'm still not going to react because that's ludicrous outrageous behavior so even if you are right having a bad reaction is still not the right choice so that's what we say with the children that even if you're right that you shouldn't have gotten the detention or whatever a bad reaction is a separate bad choice to make um if that makes sense um and you can think about it like so that we boil that down to even thing or we stipulate it to things even like excuse making and that's something that is very hard to break a habit of so something that is I'm going to describe it now and you're either going to think, oh my gosh, yes, or you're going to furiously disagree, is that children <laughs> in small ways lie to us all the time, by which I mean something like you say, uh, um, okay, everyone watching me when I show this, empty your hands, uh, Musa, put your pen down. I wasn't holding my pen. And it's like, I just saw you with my eyes. You were <laughs> holding your pen. And it doesn't matter. He just needs to put his pen down for the fact that he's now argued back, yes. saying, I wasn't holding my pen has disrupted the whole lesson because he's one, he's uh, being, uh, when I say childish, they're children. I don't mean they're not, they shouldn't be behaving like children, but I say childish, I actually mean um, a kind of <laughs> almost like primordial instincts or like very babyish instincts, which yes. is to do the first thing you feel like doing in the same way that there'll be lots of times that we even tell these lies, like, um, yeah, you know, your partner might say to you, can you just speak more quietly? You go, I was speaking quietly. And you weren't. <laughs> but you just, we have this reflexive line we do all the time. Yes. And it's really annoying. And it means we're not honest with ourselves. And it also then suddenly makes a debate and a conflict when you're all just trying to do something else, like teach the children how to solve quadratics or whatever. So, Musa, put your pen down. I wasn't holding my pen. That's a demerit because that's a bad reaction because even excuse making is seen as a reaction. That's a bad reaction because you're making the lesson now about you rather than about the learning, if that makes sense. So you're stealing time from everyone else for something that's actually just a conversation that you and the teacher need to have. So anything where children prioritize themselves over the class when that's not appropriate is a demerit because it's seen as a bad reaction. And um, I mean, that's not going to cover everything. There are times when obviously a child does need to prioritize themselves over the class, and that's yes. Uh, but it's, it's obvious when that's happening. Something like I wasn't holding my pen isn't that. Even something like um, uh, Musa, that's a demerit. We don't turn around. Oh, I was just giving so and so his pen. That would then be a second demerit because yes, he might be. I mean, that wouldn't be a reason. But um, the child should put his hand up and say, "Can I ask so and so for a pen?" or can I give Musa a pen? Yes, thank you for doing that. That's really kind. Um, but that answering back, that's framed as answering back because it doesn't need saying in the lesson. We don't need a debate in the lesson yes. about this. Trust the teacher at the end of the lesson. If you think there was an important mitigating circumstance, tell them at the end of the lesson, the lesson isn't about you. The lesson is about all of us. So I think a lot, I mean, I said the thing about the hive and the bees last time, getting the children to see that in lesson, they're a whole team not an individual because we're all as a team trying to move forward. Like, yes, we're individuals with individual relationships. We celebrate the individual. We make big of their achievements. We um, we try to inspire them to uh, overcome their limitations and to work harder next time and if they've underachieved and so on. Um, but seeing it as we are a team effort, this isn't about me right now. Does that make does that make sense? Oh, it makes it makes perfect sense. And I've, I've a million questions about, about this. <laughs> Wait, it's oh. almost like I gave that example because I thought that would prompt a lot of questions. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so it's, different. It's, 
it's per, yeah, it is. You're absolutely right. It, it's so different. And I wonder, um, I've just, can we play a little game here where I'll I'll describe <laughs> a behaviour and I want to yeah, know true. what it's kind of worth. So <laughs> am, I, am I right in thinking? Have I got my head around this right? One demerit in a lesson. Oh, no consequences. Well, yes, actually, I'll describe that part yeah, of the system yeah. first because this is the one that's going to kind of, this is where it kind of blows you away, is um, for people who aren't used to the school or aren't used to um, really good whole school behaviour systems, this will be true for the schools, it's just what we apply it for yeah. might be different. One demerit is a demerit and that just counts as a demerit. At the end of the day, your form tutor will be like, why would you get the demerit? Or your mum or dad, because they can see reward at home, the system that they get logged on and talk to you about why you got a demerit. But it's ultimately... Uh, it might count too if you're getting loads and loads and loads of demerits we and you're on like a negative balance and things you'll be getting the firm attention of your form tutor and head of year and so on um but it's just a demerit it's can i just ask it that danny so um <laughs> just to on that so um, the, whole, yeah, the whole thing's so interesting we never oh, it is, finished it's, it's that. absolutely mind-blowing this so the end of each day the kids are meeting with the form tutor and the form tutor has a record of all everything behavior-wise that's so, happened throughout the day is that right yeah so let me describe the basic structure and then describe how the children experience it and then you can ask your scenarios which is otherwise i know that it'll be like when you try to describe angles last time it never yes <laughs> never yeah, yeah 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 of course so and if you could also sure um, if you could also touch on how the parents have conveyed that information because yeah, yeah, i'm yeah, very interested in that as well yeah and it, yes it's interesting cause it's different so uh one in it as is a fresh slate for every lesson one demerit is just a demerit two demerits is an automatic attention three demerits is on call you have you immediately leave the lesson even if it's three times you called out or three times you turned around or Yes. you were sluggish handing out the books then you um said sir when you put your hand up and then you tried to make an excuse when you're told it was a detention you're out of the lesson so you've not been awful it's just a complete consistent blanket rule for the children three demerits you're out of the lesson um so the they get recorded all day on the system called reward um where your dog merits and you can put a comment for well, there's not much saying common for merits but you put comments for the demerits and detention on call and so it's all there the everyone can see it for everyone um the children then have their own account that they and mom and dad or whoever they live with can log into and look at so we've got some parents who um <laughs> there are some kids who uh whose parents check every day one boy he's telling me my mom checks at lunchtime and if i've been doing a good job she might she might get me a sweet and, a, and if i have a bad job i know i'm gonna come home and i won't have dessert <laughs> he's really funny so his mom checks twice a day um Jeez. some parents who like Catherine's doing a lot of work with you know amongst things she's trying to coach me to spend a lot more time actually looking at reward and having a conversation with their child at the end of every day about what happened why did it happen what are you going to do differently tomorrow at the end of the day the form tutor goes through reward so like with my form we'll do a little like drum roll like Whoa, to see who's at the top we've got one boy who was on a negative balance to start the half term so like we've decided it's our class goal to have him be on positive and our class goal is that he gets called out at the end of the half term as the person who's made the most improvement so we're all like gunning for this guy and like <laughs> all the kids are like quizzing him in the yard to make sure he passes quizzes and encouraging him and praising him and like all this so at the end of the day, there's all this like, yay, for all the people who've done well, the people who've done badly, what were the detentions for, what are you going to do differently? Some of them will take out for a separate conversation, might be persistent uh, punctuality or whatever, and talk about like what time you set your alarm, have you got two alarms, 
put your phone on the other side of the room, whatever strategies, and then the next day, did you actually do it? And things, you know, they'll say <laughs> they actually do it and things. So uh, relentless accountability. Um, so everyone, so the kids can't see each other's on reward, but the form tutor puts it up at the end of the day and right. everyone then sees. So just like we put the quiz scores, I mean, they've heard the ki- they've heard each other get these merits and demerits all day. So there's no surprise other than they've maybe lost track and they want to see if they're the best and things like that. Um, so that's totally open, though at home they can't see anybody else's um, so the parent can only see how they've done. Yes, got it. And um, just just to clarify, so I've got it right in my head, you, and I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm right on this. You described before the scenario of child A who got two demerits, but then worked hard and got a merit. It's not the case that it's kind of a minus one plus one system, it, that I mean, a demerit and a merit cancel each other out. They do in terms of what's counted in that, for example, the person who was lowest in the form on friday was on a balance of zero but she'd gotten she'd gotten three merits but she'd also gotten a detention and a demerit so that kind of just negative three so her balance for the day was zero yes but that didn't mean her detentions were cancelled because of the like everything gets logged so they might cancel each other out in terms of your balance but they don't cancel each other out in terms of your consequences does that make yes, sense it makes per- perfect sense perfect sense uh right okay so i'm, I'm thinking back and <laughs> uh, literally I'm, I'm having to rack my mind literally just back to the last time i taught year 11 yeah. and i've just yeah. made a note of some of the things that happen and this will be very common in my lessons and i just wondered um we'll play i think this could go prime time danny i want to call <laughs> this demerit or no demerits right? and, and maybe there's even a third category where it goes more severe so first is um i'm a stu- I'm a student and I arrive late to lesson. Firstly, does that ever happen? And if it does, what happens there? <laughs> I was about to say, I don't know how that could happen. <laughs> um, like, I can't think of how that would happen. Um, <laughs> so there's also merit, no demerit, more severe, impossible. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> that the whole class is dismissed and the whole class walk together and everyone's on duty at every single junction and on every corridor. So there's just no way to be late in yes. that I guess like if a child's late because they've been struggling someone on duty in the corridor has already given them a demerit for being slow right. so and they're like ah! I mean the kids were kind of jog to lessons because they are really keen to be there <laughs> and be the first in and hand the books out and be praised for slanting well or get a merit for being the first to be ready with all their equipment and things anyway and they also I think as we would say they do really enjoy learning they love their lessons I mean I go in and watch lessons of other subjects and I'm so inspired and I learn loads and, I mean I thought I was smart until I watched people's lessons in the school and thought I don't know anything loads. <laughs> 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 um, so late I mean if they were actually late like I mean you can't they can't get into the bathrooms between lessons so I don't yes. like, so they couldn't really hide in them I'm just trying to think how would a child be late I can't <laughs> That sounds crazy. Like, I'm not answering your question. No, I but like it. No, set up, Catherine set the school up so that, like, these things can't happen because yes. we don't actually want the children getting lots of consequences. We want it to be that if you've gotten a consequence, it was because it was totally your choice to do it, Got that it. you had full control and responsibility. So you had full control so you can take full responsibility, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, so things like having everyone duty, hurrying the kids along, dismissing them as a whole class, receiving them as a whole class they lined up and they come in is to mean that they, you don't have things like lateness and shades of grey. Um, I think in the whole time of Bit Michaela, I had one kid who was late. I mean, sometimes a kid comes late, but you immediately receive a text saying, sorry, Moose was late, well, had to see him about blah. You know, okay, fine. And you say, hello, Moose, I'm glad you joined us. And you just make them feel... So anytime a kid shows up late, my first, I just say straight away, like, oh, um, oh, I thought you weren't here today. So glad you're joining us. Come on in quickly and get your book. Because you assume you're about to receive a message being positive. So it actually means you can just always assume the best 
funnily if a kid's late because an adult you assume an adult has had a reason to take them and talk to them um so that's actually quite nice when they come in you can make them feel really welcome straight away (laughs) um so i think once someone was late because he'd gone to the this wasn't me he i mean this is this is one kid i can think of in the whole school um he was late because he decided to go to the bathroom and he just like wasted time so it took about five minutes but since then we've now set up a thing that you can't get into the bathrooms between lessons we just don't want that crack in the we don't want to have any cracks they can fall through we don't want it to start being possible for children to congregate in the bathrooms because any unsupervised places where bullying can happen or things that you don't want to have happen can happen so Seal that up. Got it. So sorry, that was a no, it's unfortunate for your first example. <laughs> no, it's got, it's got it. And can I ask before I do example to it, just so I've got it right in my head, um, just on a practical level. Um, so you're at the board teaching, you're doing a lovely lesson on quadratic graphs or something like that. Um, a kid calls out or whatever, so you think, right, I've got to give him a demerit. But then maybe another child gives a, a wonderful answer and you're thinking, right, that's worthy of a merit. Just practically, are you making a little note on a scrap of paper next yeah, to you? So depending on the teacher, um, most of the time a trustworthy child. So the teachers print out like they've got a whole uh, bunch of them lists, class lists, and it's just a, a column says mayor's, column says demerit. So kids are just make and the trustworthy child is making a tally. At the end, they get to report to the class how everyone's done, and they feel important. Um, yeah. I just like noting it down myself, just for my own. Just that I prefer that. Uh, I think also the classes I teach don't have as many children who I want them. I, I can't. I, I don't have that many children. Where I think they could definitely handle the split attention and that. <laughs> um, Got it. So that's just a little thing. But yeah, most teachers have like a trustworthy kid who's taking it down or uh, t- making a tally. Super. Got it. All right. So let's return to the game show everyone's talking about here. So it's <laughs> demerit, nothing, more severe or impossible to happen at Michaela. So they're your four choices. All right. So your next one is. Um, a child's walking in um, to your lesson and the shirt's hanging out. What's happening there? Oh, that's a demerit. It used to not be. Um, it used to be we'd remind them. But we find we think recently the children are doing it on purpose. I mean, when I say children, we think a tiny core of children are doing it on purpose to be cool. So we've told them, we've told all of them that from now on, if your shirt's untucked, it will be a demerit. We'll probably stop that rule in a week or two. So they've all been told. So now if you at the moment, if your shirt's on top, it's a demerit. Once they get back to being normal, we'll go back to just giving a reminder. Once it goes back to being a very rare behavior, we'll go back to reminders. Because once it goes back to rare, then it's probably just they forgot or didn't realize it had happened. Uh, that makes, So when you get a pandemic of something, I say pandemic, I mean like two months <laughs> But once it begins to look like it's a deliberate behavior, we then treat it as a consequence. If it looks like forgetfulness or just like things that just happen, like your shirt comes untucked, then we just say reminders though that said has your shirt ever been untucked in school no of course not because you don't want to look scruffy um so that some people might think oh how awful you're giving a demerit for the shirt being untucked but have you ever seen a professional adult in school with an untucked shirt no i hate hate to say this danny mine's out regularly i'll be honest with you Ah. i don't know whether i'm a funny shape or something but something is just (laughs) popping out and i'm just wondering you mentioned there about the um almost kind of things changing category from from demerit worthy to reminder worthy how's that information communicated to kids are there like a Um, list of things that are worthy of a demerit or do you announce that things have changed if something, so we have they learn at the start of the year and they're boot camp in year seven. They learn all the things they get a demerit, get a merit, and so on. We make clear we give constant reminders, reinforce informed time. If decide if it's decided to change category, 
temporarily to change the behaviour of crackdown or something that looks intentional. They're all told in the assembly and they're told the rationale. They're reminded in form, reminded of the rationale. Then it starts the next day, the start of the day, the form tutor gives them all a reminder. And the teachers will do lots of preemptive stuff like, all right, when I say go, we're going to stand up and get ready for the next lesson. Don't forget to check your shirts. You're giving like broad reminders so that they can check check themselves as well. So lots of, so we're putting more effort into remind giving global reminders around shirts and presentation at the moment to minimise um, demerits that are forgetfulness and to make sure that demerits are the child chose the demerit through their behaviour. If that makes sense. Got it. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Next one on my list. Um, I think I know where this one's going. Um, I'm I'm a year I'm a year nine or whatever in your lesson. I'm just chewing. I'm having a bit of a sweet or something. Um, and you've spotted me. I'm chewing. What's happening there? Oh my god. So no, this was funny. I just felt my my jaw actually drop when you described that. And I say that like I had I'm in my first school. I had this year eleven girl who she was just always eating. Um, so it's not like I'm not. I haven't experienced this, but I, my jaw physically dropped, and it just shows how much my um, environment has changed. Um, <laughs> like, I've just made, like, the ultimate teacher face of, like, oh! <laughs> just from you saying it. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, God. Um, I'd probably immediately text SLT, and they would take the kid out. Like, that's beyond on call. Like, beyond that's not just on call. Like, like, SLT are going to, like, probably, if, like, given that, I'm just sure enough that that's what's happened. Um, like, you might do a little thing to check. I mean, occasionally I've thought a kid has um, been chewing and actually they're pulling out their loose tooth and just put it in their pocket. Yes, yeah. And that happened twice. And that's why I'm going to show you the tooth. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think. If that happened, it probably would be you'd text the on-call group and say, name, sweets, and they will come to the door and be like, come with me. And all the kids go, oh. Because we want to, like, that was just, from the school point of view, that is such an unacceptable behaviour. When we've had, um, very occasionally, I think one kid this year did eat a sweetened lesson that we know about. We then, for a week, and we told the children it's because someone ate a sweetened lesson, we did bag searches all week. Because the rule is you don't bring sweets to school. So we did a week of, well, we did two days telling them what was going to happen. Like, make sure you don't have sweets. And then three days of actually searching bags even to detention if you have sweets in your bag or in your pockets. Um, and we tell them it's because of somebody said that. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, that's extreme behaviour. Not something <laughs> I actually think that's extreme behaviour. Extreme behaviour is the awful stuff. Um, <laughs> but by treating that as extreme, extreme things don't happen. Yes. Um, I mean, wow. I think, I mean, May I say it's extreme because if you're eating, that's such a, um, this word isn't quite the word I want, but it's such subversive behavior. And it's, I mean, I remember when I was in year five, I got through an entire pack of Skittles and I was very pleased with myself. I learned nothing in that lesson. I know it was a French lesson. We learned that they had to conjugate etra and I was still really bad at it because I was so focused <laughs> on my Skittles, not really the enjoyment of them, but just the surreptitious nature of what I was doing, that it's impossible to concentrate if you're trying to surreptitiously eat. Like it's, it's such a failure to buy into the opportunity to learn yes. during that lesson. And we really, really don't want the kids eating sugar because they're going to have a high and then a crash. We also want them to learn the self-discipline of not needing to eat all the time and knowing that they can focus for two hours since while you're broken up by moving lessons without needing to eat. Yes. And, you know, just and, you know, they get have an entire school day where they're not having sweets and they have that. They learn that, yes, I can be a focused, disciplined person without needing sweets all day. So they learn that about themselves. So they don't need to rely on sweets. So we treat that as 
I've made it sound like that's such a crazy reaction, but within the framework of what we want for the children, eating sweets in a lesson really flies in the face of the, our aspirations for them. Yes, no, that that makes that makes perfect sense. Flipping it, Danny, this is this is this is good. This. Um, I'll try and pick some now that are, are going to be yeah, hopefully a little trickier. But I, I don't know what about what about what about this one? And um, this is some of the hit our school. Maybe maybe it's Bolton specific. This, but um, we have like a policy of of um, black shoes the kids have to wear. Oh yeah, but yeah, then yeah. there was a trend. Um, the kids, I won't say the brand, but mind you, maybe it'll get me a load of free stuff being sent. Maybe I'll even do a bit of product placement. But um, the kids had, they had like different color laces kind of going around the side. So they Ooh. were black shoes, but with a bit of a difference going on. Like, um, So they weren't conforming perfectly to, to school rules. Um, if you as a teacher, as a classroom teacher, um, kind of see that in your lesson, is that something you pick up on? Or is, is a general uniform um, things more kind of form tutor style? They, get, they all get picked up on in the kids' line up at the start of the day at 7.50 the, each head of year puts their hand up and then the four forms line up in front of them in their form groups in alphabetical order and that's when the form tutor and the head of year just quickly go down each line to check uniform for everyone and it's really really swift anyone you're unsure about gets sent to reception and the head of year uh, decides ah, if they right. um so it never makes it to lessons yes um anything really minor you're not sure about you just send a message form t- to the head of year saying I'm not sure about so-and-so's shoes. I'm not sure about so-and-so's socks. Like, they appear kind of kosher, but you're just like, "Mm, I'm not sure. So then they're just going to take a little peek later just to see if they're not in uniform and it's replaceable, like they, I'm trying to think what would be, like a kid's come to school and they've forgotten their blazer. They get a detention, but they get a spare one from reception and they have it the whole day. It's normal. They go back at the end of the day. If they haven't got uniform shoes, they're not allowed into lessons until their parents come in with a pair of shoes for them that are uniform, which includes no brands on them, no laces. Yes. Um, so it's seen, uh, uniform is, there's an absolute standard you must meet and any deviation means you're not permitted in lessons. So seen as um, the priority, we don't prioritise lessons at all, being in lessons over everything. We I mean, our priority is in, as children are in the lessons, ready to learn, bought into the school, but we see uniform actually is a big part of being bought into the school. Um you know, if you uh, in a bit, it might be interesting just to say the different. Uh, we we want children in lessons. We don't prioritise keeping children in lessons, um, which we can talk about in a sec after you finish the, the these examples. Um, uniform includes haircuts. If their haircuts aren't meeting the standards, they also wouldn't be allowed in lessons until it's fixed um, or hairstyle. And with shoes, I mean again to make it easy for them to comply at the start of every term. Um, someone on SLT or they send someone and they review and every photo goes around to every local shop that sells shoes and takes a photo of every acceptable pair and they go up on the website and parents have a mobile number they text is saying I'm going to buy these do these look okay and you get a response ah. saying yes or no to them as well and there's really clear guidance on the website of what is it isn't allowed flipping heck and yeah you meant you mentioned haircuts that that was on my list as well because that's a dodgy one sometimes right because the, 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 there's there's fine lines between what what works and what doesn't but it, that that's something that, again that will be picked up in the line and that yeah, will be ahead of year to make the final call yeah that. classroom teachers don't make any decisions Got on it. those things and classroom teachers never have to enforce those things either because it. it's dealt with before they enter the building fantastic all right what about what about this next one so i'm in class and um i have a little sip of water can i do that um Ah, the rules have changed on this. And actually, there's only one boy who frequently asks, can I have some water? And I say yes. But he's he has some health problems at the moment. I mean, I won't say more, but yes. gross. But he needs to at the moment. So that's... Uh, it used to be they're allowed to when they wanted. We stopped that pretty quickly because I was really maddening. Then it was they're allowed to if they asked. 
And that stopped because it was actually very irritating having kids frequently ask that. Um, and then we thought, the teachers aren't having sips of water all lesson. And we were talking the whole time. Or some of them, yes. you might, but you're talking all lesson, so it makes sense. Um, so, like, yes, it's important they're hydrated. They do have water bottles that they can have. But actually, mid-lesson, if you're drinking, you're not focusing on what the teacher's saying. So that's, it used to be fine. And that one has changed because you realise it was disrupting the lessons. Got it. So, so demer- demerit if I have a water. Yeah. Got it. Got yeah, that'll be yeah. perfect. All right, my next one. I've um, I've forgotten my pen. Oh, um, so the form tutor's doing equipment check with everyone first thing in the morning. If you haven't got your two black pens, you've got a detention. If you during the day lose one of your pens, you'll get a demerit for uh, misplacing your equipment and being disorganized. A disorganization demerit. Um, <coughs> so if you've just been uh, if you've not prepared been prepared for the day, you've gotten a detention for equipment. And then after that, it's just a demerit for not taking responsibility for your uh, equipment. Got it. And if again, I'm just being picky. Just, just, just. I'm, 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 I'm also. What I'm interested about this, Danny, as well, is that how almost kind of clear your answers are. That there's, um, (laughs) and I'm, I'm purely saying this because for me, like. I know I'd get different answers if I had different members of staff throughout the school. But more than that, I would react differently to different classes and different kids. Yeah. And I, what, I, what I'm getting here is the consistency coming through. Um, so, I'm, yes. I'm interested. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. No, no, go on. The mean, or the, the consistency is we. If your school is strict, it has to be fair. And yes. for children, consistency is the essence of fairness. I mean, as you, as you get older, you get slightly more nuanced ideas of what fairness is. But children are made so deeply unhappy by inconsistency. Nothing, the children who would, there's so many children who don't mind their detention as long as everyone else who's done it gets a detention too. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) But the feeling that the rules are consistent and that it was not made difficult for you to do the right thing feels totally acceptable to children and it doesn't seem to stress or upset them i mean they're you know they're cross or self-pitying if they've not met the expectation they get detention but once they've actually become more mature we've talked to them and gotten them to think about their mindset and their reactions they generally aren't cross and self-pitying they're just like oh gosh i can't believe i forgot that i'm annoyed at myself do better next time and that's kind of it i know some of these responses have been given in kind of a deadpan or monotonous way of course talking to a child or say okay so that's a detention because it's so important to look after to be prepared every day you know you're never going to see um a doctor go to surgery having forgotten me as if they bring their own scalpel but you know because they're still young um (laughs) you know you're not going to see me come to lesson without my pen ready to write on the board or you know you say in depending on the stage like a child who's had multiple detentions for it you don't need to re-explain every time but you begin with like Kind, encouraging, firm, clear analogies that link to the professional world of professional adult behavior to say the standard we have for you is a standard of excellent people, uh, you know, and all those kind of things. And it's kindly and clear and stuff. So I, I realize that I'm saying them in a way that makes it sound very robotic. But of course, with the children, it's all. Yes. It's just I don't need to talk like that to you because you're a grown <laughs> Got it. Got it. Um, the, these ones, Danny, because those those ones, they were to warm you up on this game show, right? Because they're you. the ones that I think we can, we can all agree are kind of detrimental to learning, fairly clear cut. And it's just the severity of them and how, how you deal with them and so on. But what about the following, which I hope will be things that you could argue the kids aren't doing for the wrong reasons uh, and so on. Now, you mentioned on the... Um, on, uh, when we when we did part one of this, that if it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that if um, for example you would say to um, 
uh, a child so, so, say you say to class right turn to page 38 or i know i know sometimes you, you don't have textbook and so on but so you give an instruction out um and if a child then like later puts the hand up and says sorry what what page did you say uh, is that a demerit because they've not been listening is would that be right um so and again this is the teacher needs to take responsibility to make sure that it's easy to make the right choice and do the right thing right if i've said the page number and some children haven't heard it the first thing i'll think is is this my fault Right. And sometimes I might not have made sure that everyone was slanting and listening when I said it. So it is my fault because I've not made clear. Listen to the thing I'm about to tell you. Um, so if I've I've been talking, I say, all right, get your books open. And they start opening them and go to page 38. But they're all moving and opening their books. It's ah. a bit of noise and there's potential spit. That's my fault. I should have been much clearer. OK, books open. Three, two, one and slant. We're going to page 38. Which page, Musa? 38. Go! And they all open page 38. Got now it. they don't know that's a demerit because I've now set them up to, for success and to make the right choice. Um, so we might, for, so if I, a lot of times I'm saying the page number, I'll just write it up on the board and say, okay, from page 38, I've written it here on the board. Go! And someone says, which page? And then it's a demerit because they've not looked at the board. They've not taken yes. these, they know that I'm always going to write it up. So they've not bothered to look at the board. I mean, if I've then not written it up, having forgotten and I oh sorry Musa page 38 I should have written it up and I'll go write it up because he's corrected me um but if there's an expectation about how we always do this and you've not met it then it would be a demerit does that make sense makes perfect sense got it um what what about this one so you've you've given an explanation um and then the kids kids are kind of working away and a child pulls his hand up and says um sorry miss I, I don't get it I don't get it and you're not sure whether they just can't be asked or they genuinely don't get it. Is there a, Mm-mm-mm. what's happening there? Are you coming over just to talk to them to try and figure out? And is there a potential for that scenario to end in a demerit yeah. if you make the judgment that they're just essentially being lazy, if that makes sense? So um, I'm trying to just give a really simplistic little sequence to make sure I, I, we're both picturing the same thing. So yes. let's say I've shown them how to do, we'll make sure, we'll say it's just a process. So something that's um, not as uh, big on So just how to do a process. Um, um, say how to write out the factor pairs for a number yeah. uh, to mean they know their times tables or whatever um, or some prime factor decomposition so it's just very process based and I've shown them a few I would have been asking questions we'd check one or two on the mini whiteboards and then I'm satisfied that I can, they can all do it and I set them off if at that stage they say they put, if they put their hand up straight away and say miss I don't know what I don't get what we're meant to do I'll say, I might say okay look at question one just like the one we just practiced on the whiteboards, is that okay? Oh yeah, miss, that's fine. Grand. So you know they were just confused yes. about the connection between what the question said in the booklet and what we've just been doing. So that's fine. If I've been going around the class for a minute, checking on people, and then someone says after one minute or two minutes, miss, I don't know what to do, then if it's the first time it's happened in ages, I stop the whole class and say, I'm really cross at Musa right now. I've been helping people for two minutes going around checking on them and he just sat there for two minutes doing no work and not telling me that he didn't know what to do. Musa didn't take any responsibility for get, for getting help from me. So uh, trying to put the responsibility on them to ask us for help with a sense of urgency. So not that it's... Um, like all the time children don't understand how to do things. That's normal because yes. of the content. But if they then are treating that at all as an opportunity to not work, that scene is very bad. So if it's the first time it's happened in ages, I'll get, I'll go, everybody stop. 
I'm really cross at Musa right now because blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, I'm, you know, I even are actually suspecting that Musa's not try, saw this as a chance not to work. I hope that's not true because I know that Musa wants to do really, really well at maths and probably he just wasn't really thinking. But next time, if he's stuck, he, he knows that he should put his hand up straight away to tell me that he needs help. What should you do if you put your hand, uh, if you're stuck? Put your hand up straight away. What will happen if I see that you didn't know what to do and you told me, didn't tell me you were stuck? What will happen? It's going to be a demerit. Okay, off you go. So to reframe it, make sure it's really clear to them what the narrative is and the reason for the narrative. A bit of a cross voice, so not a harsh voice, but a like, ooh, serious voice. And it depends on the teacher, but something like, this is very serious, guys. I can't believe this has happened. If it then happened again, say in the next week, uh, or happened, there's a little rash of it, then I would demerit each time. But if there's been a long time since it happened, then you might stop and re-explain to them the expectation because you're not sure if the reason happened was uh, clarity of expectation or deliberate bad behaviour. Does that make that, sense? It does, and it, it kind of leads to, to a bigger thing, this, because, and I'm interested whether this is whether this is your style, Daniel, whether this is something that's uh, Michaela in, in general, that stuff's very public, right? Like in yeah. front of the kids. And uh, you touched upon the, well, in great detail on this in, in part one, where we talked about kind of the competition element mm-hmm. and sharing of kids' mm-hmm. results. And and this behavior thing as well, it wouldn't be a, a kind of quiet word to the kid to say, look, you know, you I know what you're doing here. This is a demerit or whatever. This is, I'm going to stop the class. We're going to make everyone aware of yeah, this. Yeah. Arguably, and again, just to play devil's advocate here, arguably interrupting the rest of the kids yes. kind of working working away mm-hmm. so is this is this a michaela wide policy and how do you justify as i say interrupting 20 25 other kids to deal with yeah. one kid is it is it because it's just a, a bigger issue that, that warrants it so that's a really good question especially the interruption point so the reason in that case because that's absolutely happened this week to stop the whole class is thinking has this happened because my expectations have been unclear so actually if it's because my expectations I urgently need to rectify that with everyone. It also is a bit of, in a nice way, a bit of a kick up a bum for the whole class of like, oh God, I better have got lots of work done before she gets to me. Um, So it's kind of, it's also setting up for everyone like, I don't get fooled by you guys. Don't you try to fool me. Um, I've made it really clear now, but it's also, also portraying a bit of positive of this is unclear. So I'm going to exercise my judgment this way. But now we all know where we stand, don't we? If he did it again, if I got to him and I've, I know this is clear with the whole class and I get to Musa the next lesson and he's not worked and they're all working busily, then I will have a quiet conversation explained to him as to demerit um, and so on because I know that the rest of them know and he's just making bad choices or avoiding yes. work or whatever. So if you think this is something they all don't know, or it's not clear to me why this has happened, so I need to make things clear for everyone, then you do need to urgently address it, otherwise you can have the same conversation with 30 children, which is way more inefficient, and also isn't making clear public expectations. Um, if you know the expectations are clear for everyone, and no one else knows that bad behaviour has happened, they might as well just talk to the child. If the bad behaviour happened publicly, then you do want to have the, the public uh, consequence, so the children can see like justice is done, because you want them to see that enforcement is... Oh, is always there. Like just as if every time someone littered, you saw that person get a fine, then you wouldn't litter because you see, oh, you always get caught. So the children see each other's bad behaviors. So you want them to see the justice or the consequence that comes with the behavior so they can be sure that there's like universal order. Yes. But if it's a private behavior that the rest of them don't know has happened, then there's no point in telling the rest of them, both for the illusion of 
you know, they're going to behave as their peers behave. If they think everyone's working really hard, you don't want to break the illusion by saying yes. someone wasn't working hard. But it doesn't break the illusion if you think, if you said it's like, oh, Musa didn't know that he needs to take responsibility for telling me he's stuck. Then you're not breaking the illusion. You're saying, I haven't been clear enough with you guys. Now it's clear. Better make the right choices. Um, so it's partially keeping an illusion of everyone's really good. Be like everyone else. Um is what is when you'd keep things private or quiet. If everyone knows the bad behaviours happen, then you almost need to be public so they can see the certainty and the consistency with which consequences come. Got it. And and can I just add, just on that point, because um, again, reading the book, um, the, the, the Michaela Tiger Teacher's book, there was a big thing in that that came across was this um, kind of no no exceptions. It's, it's one rule mm-hmm. for, mm-hmm. for everybody. And just to clarify that, Danny, if you know of kind of extenuating circumstances, if you know kids got some trouble at home, and I think you mentioned that mm-hmm. in part one, you gave the example of a childhood, perhaps before his dad was on his test because his dad was sick and so on. And um, what's your way of dealing with that? Is it publicly to deal with that child as you would any other child, but then perhaps after the lesson, you may have a mm-hmm. word with them and take a different tax? Or how does no ex- no exceptions work in those difficult kind of yeah grey areas, if that makes sense? Um, I suppose. So when they're in school, sorry, can you still hear me? Yeah, of course. Sorry, sorry I just had a little blip. I wasn't sure. So when they're in school, we'd have, we'd still say a complete blanket expectation of no excuses for being disruptive rude or making bad choices or not trying to learn we'll acknowledge the child it's going to it might be harder feeler to learn and to focus but for example we'd say and this um and i, I can see this being something that some listeners would really dislike and it's something that i now really believe in but had to come round to with a lot of thought for child's sibling is very ill like mortally ill that's obviously horrible and obviously the appropriate adults would have been expressing sympathy to the child saying i'm sorry you're going through this would have expressed sympathy to the family um but they will then reiterate it's really important that you don't that you don't um stop this from you getting education your sister doesn't want you to have a bad education you sitting and worrying won't make your sister better you need to, you're in school to learn, so you need to be in school focusing on learning. You're still going to get a demerit if you don't work hard. You will still get a demerit if you turn around because we, our natural feeling of sympathy and possibly even guilt thinking, you know, let's say a child's sister was going to die imminently. I'm thinking, oh, I'm so lucky my sister's still healthy and alive and I love her and I'm so lucky to have her. And I maybe even feel a bit guilty, especially a lot of children do have really hard lives. Um, that, is not a reason to suddenly shout out or be rude to your teachers. And I, I know that in my first school, there was a lot of, um, and maybe it was just me, I would, I remember even I had this boy who he, in a lesson, he, um, mid-lesson, he didn't understand something, so I was explaining it more, and I said, explained back to what I just said, and he was like, oh, for F's sake, and he shoved the table and stormed out of the room. And then the corridor, I, you know, after I went out and I was like, um, and call him Jay. It's like Jay, what was that about? Because we'd had like a perfectly nice relationship, and like so, you know, that was weird. And he's like, "Sorry, Miss, it's just I'm having. I've just had a fight with my girlfriend." And uh, and I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry to hear that." But, you know, it's really important. And now I'm thinking, what the hell? Like, what? Someone could be going through a divorce, and they're not going to suddenly tell the kids to f off. Or if they do, that's really inappropriate and bad. And or to storm out of the room, like. Yes, it's awful that things are happening, but that's not a reason that you are 
that doesn't cause you to become a rude person or a person who makes bad choices. It maybe gives you an excuse in your mind of why you're doing it, but it doesn't cause you to do it. You aren't controlled by your circumstances. Your circumstances might make it harder for you to exercise self-control, but they aren't the reason you are doing it. It's that you are choosing to lower your standards for yourself because there are lots of children who go through things that we only find out afterwards because you'd never even know and i'm sure this is true for you that things have happened we've had children be evicted and still bring their homework in the next day we've had all sorts of things like that happen because the children know we expected of them so if we start saying you're going through something bad therefore it's okay that you are rude or therefore it's okay to start throwing your education away is really strange because it sort of doubly compounds the, the tragedy of their life then that they are potentially about to face a terrible tragedy within their family and then they could have the double tragedy that they are now someone who has that we expect less of them as in their character and less of them educationally um so let's say that we know that uh we'll call a kid do we have anyone by this name i don't think so um let's say that chelsea knows her sister is very 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 ill and is hospital is in hospital and many evenings a week she goes to visit her and it's horrible and she's really upset and sad about it her head of year will have talked to her and reinforced and will probably do it every day how important it is that she comes in and she is positive and that she's able to tell her sister about how hard she's worked and that she must and that you know we still expect just as much work we know that she has it in her to work hard and to be a great person and make her sister proud and so on and let's say and the other teachers might know but the, the, we'll be given a very clear instruction in no way change your expectations of Chelsea. If before she um, was, well, no, the decision change. If she shouts out, that's a demerit. If she's misbehaving badly, she needs on call. Because if she's, I mean, if she's deciding to act out because she's really upset, then she gets on call and she needs to calm down. She, The rest of the class don't need to be witnesses and an audience to anything she's upset about at the moment. So the expectations stayed the exact same. I feel like I've described yeah. badly. No, you, you haven't at all. And look, I, the, the thing is, I know, I know this is going to be divisive, right? Like, we <laughs> yes, know people exactly. are going to be jumping all over this. We know people are going to be taking little sound clips of this and, and playing <laughs> out of context and so on. Um, I just think it's really important that people understand this no excuse or, or, or no mm. um, exceptions policy. Um, can I just ask on that? Um, a common practice, certainly in our school and in any school that I've worked in, is, and they're called a, a variety of things, but some people call them... Um, individual education programs or something like that mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. a child um uh, a child with with certain needs or whatever will have um essentially a sheet of paper that gets emailed around to all their teachers and maybe we'll get called back um, at the end of morning briefing to say anyone who teaches let's come up with uh craig smith or something can you all just stay back for five minutes and it'll be like okay so we've craig's been evaluated blah 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 um and um we've the uh, psychologist or whatever has come up with these strategies these are really good for craig so don't make eye contact don't if if, if craig's doing this don't challenge and, and all so all of a sudden you've got to deal with Craig differently. You've got different mm -hmm. strategies to deal with Craig that you would never dream of doing with Lucy or, or you know, mm -hmm. Tony or, or whatever. Um, is that something that happens in Michaela? And what's your kind of view on that? Or is it very much that you are treating every child exactly the same? Um, that doesn't happen. We do. I, I wouldn't quite describe this. Well, I suppose that we do treat them the same. We expect the same of them, but we know it's harder for some of them to do it. Right. Does that make sense? But we don't change our expectations. We do have several children who ha are on the autistic spectrum and they need a lot more coaching, reminders, uh, rationalising. So I think I'm thinking of one boy in year eight who um, 
frequently gets demerits for display for things like um, I'm trying to think how to describe. I'm trying to think of some of the things because he's 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 fine now. Um, <laughs> he's a very successful kid. Um, he's statemented. Um, he he's incredibly successful. Um, he every time he gets a demerit for things that are linked to it being potentially harder for him to do the same as everyone else but things that we do believe are important we do believe it's important that he is polite to people we do think it's important that he follows instructions first time every time and so on that there will be more effort to rationalize and check that he has understood for example so the expectations haven't changed potentially the support but the support hasn't changed in the sense of there is a ta with him doing things for him or the support hasn't changed in the sense of we expect less the support yes. is checking that he understands that this is another example of a thing that gets a demerit because of this and the reason it is important to do it is because of this and do you understand that okay explain it back to me and that kind of thing so the support change in the sense of checking that they understand what the behavior was that they did why it got a demerit and why it's important to change and those things which for the children we can take it more on, not on trust we, we have explicitly taught them what the behavior is and why it's good or bad and what consequences are and why those are good or bad and we check they've understood not needing to repeat it all the time. So with some children, there's more repetition of that lesson. So I suppose that's different. But by and large, we like if something is best practice for children who are autistic or children who have dyslexia or children with ADD, that actually is just best practice for everyone anyway. The things that are best for children who are highly vulnerable is a really structured, safe, consistent, calm school. So we have a really structured, safe, consistent, calm school because that's the best thing for the most vulnerable children. So it's the best thing for all the children. I mean, it's something that almost the more vulnerable the child is, the better the school is. Like, if you were to picture the most vulnerable child possible, the school's been designed around that child, like a child who's having really difficult family circumstances and um, or has very volatile home circumstances. We're trying to offer them a completely consistent, clear, fair, predictable, kind, high expectations environment that will never change day in, day out, where their teacher changes but their experience of the subject doesn't change, that there's just total consistency. So... Almost in some ways, the most vulnerable child, I think, is what the school's been designed around, not the the most normal child probably doesn't need these things at all. Can, can I ask you just, just two more things on behaviour from, from my, my, my point of view, Danny? And it abs- absolutely blows me away, this. I think it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it and I, I, can, I think I can see how, because I, I read in the book about the boot camp you have for year sevens at the start of the year, and I can understand how collectively you could take a year group and kind of instil these values and um, everyone's starting from the same point, so it becomes routine and, and so on. But what happens when you have kids join in kind of mid-year? Um, <laughs> is that, like, how on earth you integrate them into oh, the system know. because this this is like no other system i've, I've no, heard of them before so that must be tough right how, how do you do that so they do first they have a, a whole family meeting with Catherine, where she goes through all the school's rules and expectations which obviously she doesn't need to do for the whole year group because they, when it's a whole you know a whole yeah. new cohort so there's a quite extended meeting where she pushes for as many members of the family to attend as possible because she wants the whole family to back each other up. Anytime we get a child from a PRU, which we get reasonably often, we get lots of um, yeah. kids from the fair access panels, um, which is, you know, <laughs> excluded in all but name, and the PRU kids, those cases she is insistent that pretty much every kid who's ever, everyone who's ever related to the kid has to be at the meeting to make sure that the uh, primary carer gets maximum support and understanding from the rest of their family, helping the child uh 
fit into Michaela. Um, but any time any kids come into the school who's just like a normal, they're moving, she pushes for as many of the family to come as possible so that everyone understands what the systems are. She's mostly explained to the parents, which she explains to the kids too. And so at that point, they can walk away if they think this isn't the school for me because, you know, you don't. It's just such a waste of time and money for them to have bought the uniform yes. and other things. So you, she really wants to make sure it's totally understood. And the kid will like take a little tour. Another two kids will take the kid and their family on a tour and they see lessons, they see expectations, they have lunch with everyone, you know, just in their normal civvies. Um, and mom and dad have lunch with everybody so they can really see what the school's like. So they get like several totally uh, uncensored hours where they just, you know, the two kids take them on the tour. They'll say, oh, I want to see maths. I want to see this. Oh, I like this class. I'm staying here longer. And they just see and they have lunch just with the kids. There's no one checking what the kids are talking about with them or whatever. So they get a totally you know, warts and all sense of the school before they commit at the end of the day. So that helps. And then the, the kids' first day, they're not in lessons. They get like a an intensive boot camp where we pick out the most important ah. things that they have a lesson on each of the six most important things that they get inducted on and making sure they know how to self-quiz and things like that. And then at the end of the day, they go join their form and get introduced to the form and things like that to begin to learn names. Um, and then they get they get more help. So the form tutor or co-tutor, there's someone helping them during form for several days to make sure they've understood more of the processes, um, just to help you make you know how to do your homework and things like that. Usually, kids in the first few days get several detentions, and then none. Yes. So, and we, but we tell them that's going to happen, and they say, "But it's good because you're so far behind that it's good you're getting all the revision." Yes. <laughs> so, I'm honest, I think that's probably true. So because they really will be, they won't know all about the Greek gods or whatever. Then typically, uh, well, they won't know all of the French, so it probably doesn't too bad for them. Um, so, and at the start of every half term, we do like boot camp reloaded, where they do um, one hour of we're reading together about whatever key theme it might be about. So, the one a few months ago was why is Michaela so strict? And it was an hour of reading and discussion with the form of why is Michaela so strict? And the one, <laughs> the one this half term was why do we do so much homework? And we talk about the homework and important strategies and why we do it and catching up to private schools and having opportunities and things and next term it will be whatever it will be so we re reloaded every term as well got it got it and me my last question really on on behavior is kind of a, a more more general one um for you danny is with with the way Michaela is very um well very unique so bad, bad phrase but unique with with behavior i think it's fair to say and and also <laughs> with with the kind of structure of the lessons that we talked about um in in part one and, and mm-hmm. of this interview like could could you ever teach anywhere else now like you um, mentioned that you've mentioned how like your beliefs have been changed yeah like, could, could because you couldn't build you couldn't build all of this like you could go to another school as head of department and to a certain extent you could mold your department into and, and you could do centrally planned lessons and all this kind of thing you could do the drills and all that the self-testing but you couldn't recreate Michaela um just going in as as a head of department so like if you believe in this so much as I fully um think you do like are you tidy for life Danny could, could can you go anywhere else yeah, we all say we all say we're spoiled for life because now that we're used to <laughs> children who just do what we ask them to do, um, I mean, the amount of kids who give appreciation, they want to appreciate Mr. Smith for giving me a detention. I would be yes. like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> I remember once a kid, because we're so blunt with them, and this is something I said privately to her, so that was hilarious. She said in front of everyone, I want to appreciate in front of the whole 200 kids, I want to appreciate Miss Quinn for telling me I need to have a friendlier face in the corridor because I look really unfriendly. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to tell everyone 
everyone I'd said that because it was so funny. Um, so I mean, that's such a shift. Being obviously most kids would tell you to f off if you told them yeah. they had a the the kid equivalent of resting bitch face. But I, mean, I told her in nicer language, but that's what she had. So I was thinking, sure. it was, I mean, she was struggling to make friends. So I think I was like, she needs to know that she has yes. her, her resting face is not very friendly. Um, so I told her, and I explained it as like it's a nice thing to have people know that you're friendly because I know you're really friendly. Um, yes. So probably, I think what I'm supported for life with is um, I would be totally fine to go to a turnaround, a school that's waiting, it's not yet turned around, to go to a school that's waiting to be turned around if I had the same type of SLT. I think it's the beliefs of the adults. The kids being, like, the year sevens who come in, the particularly the kids who come from Proves with the managed moves, you know, they arrive and it's, you know, there's a lot of um, changing that needs to happen. It can take a few days and for the for kids who are the furthest away it could take a few months before they're totally bought in and then it's impossible to tell them apart we always like when people come to watch me with 8a i'll say could you tell which ones have been excluded from the last school and they're like what any of them know they just can't tell um um i mean the only giveaway is they have slightly less good posture or something <laughs> um, um so i think so the kids is not the thing i think what i would struggle with is the flipping of expectations about who's responsible or grateful for what so something that i think almost i couldn't or would find really hard to get on board with now is things like um in so many schools the adults are giving up so much of their time to offer extra 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 revision and things like that and then they're having to bribe the children to come they're thanking the children yes. for coming and that really bothers me now in a way that i was part of that before and like oh thank you so much for coming la la, la and i brought them pan of chocolat for all the ones who come and all those things and now I'm thinking what the hell this is the teacher's Easter holidays they're giving up because you didn't do any fucking work for the rest (laughs) of the year what is this sorry I shouldn't have said it like that I don't know I'm just like I'm just thinking how has this been that the teacher is thanking the kid for coming and that that sort of thing now I I think it's not that I mean it may well be that come year 11 and we've got so many children who are late arrivals because of the nature of how much churn yeah. there is in Brent and so yeah. on. It may well be that we need to do holiday catch-ups in year 11 and I mean, we're trying really hard to do all the intervention now so we don't need to and do it in school time. That may well be the case. But what will be different is the children saying, thank you so much, Miss, for doing it. And not because I need them to say thank you. The thanks that will be in their opportunity, you know, the gratification is in the opportunities they get in their future and a sense of we've helped to shepherd them on. But that it's not me begging them and me thanking them that the expectation that the understanding is that i've done something good to help them and that they are yes. grateful for it if that makes sense and not because i need children's gratitude i mean that'd be crazy but the, the expectation about what role we're playing in their lives and what them becoming more responsible for themselves so i think it's almost i mean that's just a single example obviously that's not a deal breaker but it's like the broader thing around that that i'd find hard so i think it's slt expectations that i wouldn't be able to go back to an SOT where, for example, um, thinking about what people have experienced or things that I have seen in some cases where a child, I'm thinking about like a colleague where a child told them to F off and so they got on call and the deputy came and said, was he looking at you when he said it? Meaning, was he definitely saying it to you? Because otherwise it's kind of okay. Mm-hmm. Like, that sort of thing, like, a lack of trust in the adults. I think I'd find it really hard to go back to not being trusted, if that makes sense. 
Okay, Danny. So the final thing I want to talk to you about is is drilling. And just to give a bit of background for, mm-hmm. for listeners here, um, this was the first time I'd had the pleasure of, of seeing you speak was at um, the Maths Conf in Bristol, where you did a, a workshop, um, I believe called Drill and Thrill, um, something along yeah. those lines. And you you wrote a, a brilliant blog post um, that kind of summarised your talk, showed the uh, resources and things um, that you that you use for drilling. And I'm going to place a link to that in the show notes. And I'm just going to preface the, this little section of the podcast. By, by strongly advising listeners to have a read through of that first just to get your head around what what drilling's about and so on and um, but i just wonder danny and um, to kind of open up our, our, our talk of drilling and um, could you just give us a, a practical example maybe of a lesson that you've taught whether it be this week last week or whatever and a drill that you've used in that lesson what was the drill why did you and why did you choose that particular um drill if that makes sense mm-hmm. so the uh, let, let me just think for a couple of examples in the last few weeks. Um, so recent drills I would have used would have been with UMI Year 9s, where um, just various simple instructions for different constructions that they had to draw really simple sketches of each construction. So a point away from a line, a point to a line, the uh, locus for the, pa- the points equidistant between two points and things like that. And it was just varied in order each time. And they just had to do the sketch of each of them and then check themselves against each. So that was like a drill for their constructions in the sense of if I were to say to you, um, Craig, what does it look like when you construct the uh, the perpendicular from a point to a line? You know what you expect it to look like immediately. You have an expectation of how that diagram should look. Um, or, you know, if if you've taught it recently, at least. Um, so we want to have that automaticity for them. So I mean, that, 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 that's interesting straight away there, Danny, because I, I did my well, uh, it's not I don't even need to imagine when I when I first thought of drilling, I'm picturing times tables, something like mm. that. So something something purely number based. And I'm picturing mm-hmm. um, like a, a sheet of times tables or whatever. Kids are doing that maybe in silence or whatever for the first two, three minutes. But straight away here. So this is this is a non number based drill. Um, <laughs> and this is with constructions. But with the overall idea, is it to make basic skills automated? Is that the kind of underlying principle? Mm-hmm. It's things that if it's automatic, if it can be recalled as a single thing, getting them to the stage they recall it free, uh, quickly and accurately as a single thing. So if I was to say to you, construct the perpendicular bisector of a line, just even me saying perpendicular bisector probably already brought the image in your mind of the like broadly, what does yes. it look like when you... So having that in your head means you're, oh, okay, now I know how to begin because you're picturing, you know what you're aiming for so you can tell if you're right or wrong as you do and it kind of is telling you how to begin. So that's like a single little factoid in your head is the kind of platonic form of how it looks when you construct a perpendicular bisector, for example. Um, so that's one that, yes, we normally think of numbers. It's just you're saying what, what you've done recently, what, ones I've been doing with my year eights have been um, just loads of varied forms of each lesson beginning with uh, form expressions for, because they found this very, very hard because it's um, more linguistic, of uh, three subtracted from S, T subtracted from W, W subtracted T, a quarter of four, uh, or no, no, for a quarter of W, W divided by three, triple W, W cubed, and like no, change variable each time, but just one instruction in one variable or whatever, just being alternated in several of them, then doing it, checking it, rearranging them in fresh order, change the variables, do it again until they get, because for example, they get very confused between triple W and W cubed. Um, 
W added to itself three times or W times by itself three times, um, they find it very hard to remember a quarter something means. You can just immediately divide it by four. They often write one quarter times W over one and they simplify it. Um, so getting them to be quick on those and automatic um, so that's something that we're just doing a little bit at the start of every lesson. We're doing much more expression, harder expression forming, but just getting way faster at those. And as soon as I say triple, that's why I say triple X. They love when I say triple X. <laughs> uh, triple y, um, they immediately picture three Y and we're getting rid of them thinking, oh, is it going to be the little three or the big three? You know, just getting that smoothed out and also it builds like a little success at the start of every lesson so if they do badly we'll talk about go over the few that we did badly and do it on whiteboards and then just do the exact same drill again just in a different order as in we can like who improved and then like me and you know and they feel happy and excited so then the lesson is still from their point of view begun with success um and also prime them for success for the rest of the lesson because it's on harder expressions or whatever um and can and i just also, ask danny on that on a, on a practical level when you're they're, they're writing on mini whiteboards and are you are you projecting these questions up or are you reading them out what, what's it look like so they're usually doing these like if it's several it's in their books um mini whiteboards is ones where more i want to be able to see what they're doing because i yeah. know they're making mistakes or i want to check that they've understood me um or check their accuracy and things um like it's very interesting with constructions so you say show me the construction of uh, show me how it look. Draw a line segment. Uh, show me the the how will it look when you construct the perpendicular bisector? How many of them don't draw a line that's at all perpendicular, or don't draw one that's at all in the middle? And that makes you realise they're not really getting what they're drawing. What they're not getting the bisector bit, or they're not getting the perpendicular bit because they may construct it just fine because they almost can't not construct something that's perpendicular and bisecting it. But when they sketch it, it's not at all perpendicular, or at all, or, you know, it, it in no way looks. I mean, it'll have two semicircles or whatever, but it's just so far from being in the middle that that is very interesting to see. Like, oh, they haven't really understood what they're trying to aim for here. Um, so that'll be more a mini whiteboard thing, trying to check do they understand what they're doing. Um, so a drill will be more several questions, and it depends. Either projected, but then that means you have to type it up. So usually the I'll just handwrite it because that's really fast, and then just call it out, and then call it out in a fresh order. Or I'll handwrite it and then just project that, put that on the um, visualizer, and then you just look at that. Um, and then the second time around, I'll just call it out in a different order. I'll just think I'll do the primes first and then just do the rest or oh, some easy way to remember the order. Um, and they already know what the kind of question is. So then they're just trying to recall things uh, like the most obvious drills will do is TT, uh, doing times tables or uh, at the very start of your seven, lots of add two, add three and things like that. Um, whilst teaching, for example, directed numbers, we might do lots of drills on things like uh Negative two, negative three, four take seven, seven take four, um, negative three, add nine, and all they write next to it is positive or negative. Well, you know, a plus or a minus sign. They're, yes. You know, the that's focused solely on knowing what the sign is going to be of your answer, yes. for example, or a drill that's focused solely on writing down the LCD for loads of fraction calculations or writing the denominator. So it might be the first one might be it's all just adds and subtracts with different denominators and they're writing on the LCD. Then the harder one might be loads of adds and subtracts, but not always different denominators, and they still write the LCD. Uh, yes. Then the next, they're making sure they're not, you know, one eighth plus three eighths and they get it over 64, which like is fine, but so inefficient. Of course. Um, and then the next one might be write down the denominator and it's um, adds, subtracts and multiplying to make sure that they're thinking about that. Um, because it's something, again, that you or I would be so automatic and effortless with if it's effortless for us, we want it to become effortless for them. So that would be part of um, partially with something like, will it be positive or negative as part of the instruction? Because 
you're actually trying to get them to be good at it. Um, whereas other drills might be just you're improving speed or improving fluency, like you know that they, and that's like a drill that's partially trying to build more foundations for them to understand later. You're trying to get them automatic a few things, whereas some drills might be, okay, you guys can roughly do it. Now we're just trying to get faster and more fluent at it. Um, so they can happen at different stages. Sometimes they're part of instruction to get certain things chunked in their memories, and sometimes it's coming afterwards to improve speed or confidence and things like that. Got it. And uh, this is something I, I spoke to Daisy and um, Christodoulou uh, at length mm. about. This this for me is is the concept of uh, deliberate practice. This is breaking mm. down a more complex skill. And even you've picked a great example there, Danny, the fact of um, adding fractions together. Like so often in my career, I've treated adding fractions as a skill. That's something I'm going to teach kids how to add fractions. Mm. But within adding fractions, there's, there's so many places kids can go wrong. And whether you follow cognitive load theory or, or mm. whatever way you want to look at it if you take the topic of adding fractions or the skill of adding fractions there are probably seven or eight different sub skills within there and if kids are having to think long and hard about them it's just clogging up working memory it's going to mess up everything that that kind of Mm -hmm. comes Mm -hmm. after it and i just love the idea there that the drill isn't focusing on it's not 10 questions 10 um, fractions to add together it's 10 questions where you've got to identify the lowest common denominator without doing anything else and it's am i right and correct me if i've got this wrong but am i right in it's it's getting mastery or fluency or, or automatic automaticity on those specific sub skills so that therefore when you bring the whole thing together it's not as burdensome on on working yes. memory is that right completely it's both i mean I means partially maybe reflects the class i teach is both to really reduce the burden on working memory to increase the likelihood of success when the performance is more complex yes. and also to improve their confidence and their buy-in yes. with the lesson because they're experiencing lots of little bits of success because i think a lot of the time if children think they won't know how to do it they won't know how to do it yes because i mean you know how often you've shown your kids a gcse question where you've looked at the content and thought well this is easy but you yes. show them and to them it is superficially not something they know how to do so they think well i can't do it yeah. and then they don't even attempt it yes. or they barely attempt they attempt it but with such they don't mean negative like money with such a negative or fixed mindset that then they just don't believe they could ever get it right so then they just don't so it's partially to build the children up to have so many experiences of success that it feels a bit effortless to them but also feels um even though it's very deliberate, that it feels almost inevitable that you're going to succeed as well, Got provided it. you put some effort in. Got it. That makes perfect sense. Well, we just uh, this is a, a good pun here, Danny. You'll appreciate this. Just to drill Ooh, down thanks. a bit further into, into this <laughs> drill. Couple of couple of extra questions on this one. And um, you mentioned the the fact that you want kids to be quick at, at this. So how do you stop the kids being obsessed with speed at the price of accuracy yeah. in these drills? Yeah, I mean, speed is obviously a very lower order in terms of things we care about. The reason I care about speed is more um, like the kind of speed that your average math teacher is going to have in the sense of if it's taking a while, you've just forgotten how to do it. So we care about speed in the sense of um, it's taking a single thought to do it. That's the speed you should be at. Um, Accuracy, we prioritize much, much, much more highly. And we are very critical of children who are prioritizing speed over accuracy. We talk about that's so bad. You're practicing getting it wrong. Practice makes permanent. We make a very big fuss of that with them. Improving is what matters. You're not improving if you're getting things wrong. So just a lot of narrative. Uh, Children who are continuing to speed and make mistakes, we might say, if I come next time and you've finished the whole column with lots of mistakes and you're not checking it, I'm going to give you a demerit. So we describe a physical behavior we do expect to see, like you are checking it. Um, so that we're not just trying to mind read. Um, or if I see, 
let's say there is rounding and we have a little like algorithm we get or a little like mechanism they have to underline to the certain digit and so on circle something and so on we'll say if i get to yours and i see you haven't done underline circle to side and you've got mistakes that will be a demerit so there'll be a specific warning to the child who is a speeding uh low accuracy kid to get them to move away from that so you have to be very vigilant um and really push the narrative around improving accuracy is the most important thing got it got it and what one this i first kind of thought the points of this one i when i um interviewed uh, john corbett from corbett maths but it's something that i really picked on uh, when i when i watched you deliver your excellent workshop danny this, this idea of practice makes permanent which if i was ever to get a tattoo um it would be that <laughs> i think so an absolutely wonderful phrase um am i right in saying that um you like to make to, to make sure kids um are practicing the right way they need to have almost immediate access to the answers would, would that would that be true because you don't want them yes. doing 10 or 20 of these and yes. getting them wrong and reinforcing the misconceptions and so on yes i mean there's no point in broadly i can't um depending on the like tt rockstars online and ixl gives you a feedback for every single question so yeah. it makes sense to do say 50 or ct rockstars you know do several hundred because uh, you're trying to get so fast and automatic on that with a drilling class by and large when the children aren't yet at very high accuracy you're going to stop them after five or ten questions so each time it's just going to be 20 seconds who can do the most go yeah so they're mostly going to do four or five and then you stop them so your drill might have 40 questions and you just have them labeled along the side, one to 40. Okay, now we're going to start at number 11. Yes. Go. And so on. So you're stopping them every now and then. And they might repeat a couple of questions. Like a kid who was really good might have gone to 15. Eh, let them start at 11 again. Who cares? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're just practicing the, the, the automaticity and accuracy of something anyway. Um, once they're getting a bit better, you might be trying to then build up their stamina with something that they're getting into, like a sense of fluency with it and a sense of rhythm with it. So then once they're pretty good with, say, rounding, and let's say you've gotten they're good enough that you're really mixing the questions. The first one says to significant figures. The second one says to three decimal places. That's a common thing to mix up. You might then let them do 20 or 30 because you want them to get good at that focus and that concentration. But that's like way down the line. Once they're <laughs> really good at rounding. And you're now not really thinking about the rounding. You're thinking about uh, paying attention to the question, I guess. Yes. Uh, which actually needs them to do a bit more for longer to really test that ability to pay attention to the question. Got it. No, makes makes perfect sense. And one thing you, you you've said there, and I think you you said it in your in your talk as well that I really picked up on is that you want kids to have access to the same shortcuts that that teachers mm. have. And now th this is something that when you said this, and when, when you use the specific example. Um, it brought back um, like, like it was so vivid in my memory. It, you mentioned about um, moving the decimal point when mm -hmm. you're multiplying mm -hmm. by 10. And I, I remember very clearly, in fact, probably a day one of teacher training was you never say that to kids. Never, yeah, of ne never say that. So we, we don't move the decimal point. It's all about moving. The decimal point stays still and the numbers move and all, and all this kind of stuff. And I was mm -hmm. thinking, flipping it. Like, I don't do it like that. How complicated is this making this? So can you just... Yeah expand a little bit on that is it and it kind of leads into what i'm going to ask you for my final question on drilling but uh, yeah is is it why is it important that kids have access to these shortcuts and is is there any danger in it that you see if that makes sense so i think the shortcuts um i know matt dunbar wanted to ask about anyway there's an american online book called um or american teacher made called nix the tricks which yes. is really really interesting read and a very, very worthwhile quick read for if you're a maths teacher anyone outside of maths would find it inexplicable that anyone would read it um <laughs> and there's some things where i think they're totally right that 
our efforts to use a trig are actually blurring the underlying maths completely and are almost antithetical to the nature of the maths that's made it so. So, for example, you know, the like the butterfly for adding fractions and things yes. like that, um, I think does obscure just what the heck is going on there um, and doesn't seem to necessarily improve like it improves performance but it doesn't improve fluency yes uh, so i think some tricks do that um i think the like butterfly or the like two kisses or whatever i forgot the other different things get calls for adding fractions i think that can do that um or things like um for dividing by a decimal one of the ones they want is a quite con like they don't like I think Americans use something like ball to the wall where you've got you write your decimal in like the bus stop algorithm, you move the decimal point along and Nixitrix is very against doing this. Um and I do think that's confusing, but they're what they want to do is uh, an approach that's totally focused on understanding what's going on, which I think is quite confusing. We have the general rules of the children of it's very hard to divide by a decimal. So you're going to write as a fraction, multiply both sides by 10 until yes. you don't have a decimal in the denominator, which is all mathematically true. It's not that you can't divide by decimal. Of course you can. Um, it's difficult. That is true. Write as a fraction and multiply until you have no decimal. That's also mathematically accurate and true and right. Um, so that's what we show them. So it's not as heavy on. And we then will show them things like what is actually happening when you divide by 0 0.1 and we count up in 0 0.1s to see and we show them the same as times divided by a tenth and um diagrams and so on so i think that there are loads of things that we as teachers you're getting onto something interesting and something like multiplying decimals is ultimately just so lower order and like who cares that you just you're just getting it done for the sake so you could go and do something actually more worthwhile and interesting so all of us as teachers do just move the decimal points or like just take them out calculate and put them back in but we know why, and the children need to know why, but we don't think about why when we do it. We might think about why if we're like, oh, did I make a mistake there? And then we think about the why just to check it. But we don't We don't use the why when we're thinking about any of it. When we're, say, adding algebraic fractions, I mean, by now I suppose we've done so many that we don't think about the process. But if I give you quite weird-looking fractions, you think a little bit about LCD like in the broadest possible yes. product. For the domain, you think about that a bit before you added it. So if that thinking is part of how you check your work when things get weird, we do want to share that with the children. So we do that with, for example, adding fractions. We don't use any tricks because we actually want them to be able to pull out every single step of what they're doing so they can really think about what they're doing. Um, whereas something like multiplying decimals, we as adults don't think about what we're doing because it's ultimately a process we're trying to get over with. That's not really the heart of the thing. So we just want them to understand how to check their work afterwards and how to justify their work afterwards, but they don't need to be doing justifying in their head as they undertake it. If I feel like I've expressed it badly. It's if it's highly procedural when you do it, then it doesn't then you can teach it highly procedurally, but just make sure they can also explain why that procedure is justified. But those could be two discrete things. Well, yeah, and that, I think you have explained it um, very, very well there, Danny, and it leads perfectly into just the, the last thing I want to ask you on drills. Um, now, you, last in part one, when, when, when we spoke, you said something that has, it's changed my life, this, Danny, because mm -hmm. ne I never thought of this before. And it's, if you remember, you, you spoke about how in your year seven curriculum, you will introduce kids to angle facts, uh, but w without the why. So um, angles yeah. on a straight line, 180 degrees in a triangle, whatever. Um, so they're practicing that in context in year seven and then by the time they get to year eight or year nine and maybe that's when you'll introduce um your your kind of demonstration of i think you explain angles in polygons and and, and all that kind of thing now i i'm very interested in this so um 
if we take a specific example, and I'm, I'm using this because you mentioned it um, in your workshop mm. you gave, of um, dividing fractions um, mm. and the, I think the KFC approach, keep, yeah. flip, change or whatever. Yeah. Now, I have tried many a flipping time to explain to kids <laughs> why why dividing fractions, you need to flip the second fraction over and change the divide to times. Yeah. And I have always, without fail, I have started teaching kids to divide fractions with the explanation of why it works and without fail the following thing happens no one has a flipping clue what's going on um, with my explanation of why it works and then in the end I end up showing them how it works um, and then they practice that and fingers crossed they get it and I've wasted kind of 20 minutes but it's worse than that because the confidence is gone because they're like what the flipping X is going on about I'm not I'm going to be perfectly honest with you I'm not entirely sure I fully understand why we uh, why we take the reciprocal and change the divide at <laughs> times or how I would convince somebody geometrically or something like that but is it important like are there some things like dividing fractions, like um, multiplying and moving the decimal point, that it doesn't matter if kids do not understand why it works as long as they can do it. And if that's not the case, when do, when would you just explain to a kid why dividing fractions they use the KFC approach? So I think that it is really important that children don't have um, unsatisfying experiences of maths. Like I know um, Ed Southall describes it really well in his book, how... It, um, how infuriating it is for a kid. And it can be a kid of any ability to be told this is just the rule. And there are lots of children who really yeah. want to just passively be told a rule. But a child who's actually intellectually curious to be told, well, that's just the rule, is just so, that's just awful. That's like, it's so, it's antithesis of everything we want to achieve as maths educators. Um, and it's really important to be able to, for children to be convinced that what you're showing them is true and that it works and that it makes sense. Um, but sometimes you will say to the class, first, we're going to get good at it, and then I'm going to show you why it works. And right. you sell that us, that's the treat, that's the dessert, depending. So something like multiplying fractions, depending on the group and my <laughs> my uh, highly expert in, um, in the conclusions <laughs> about their working memories. Um, so, for example, like group one and group four, last year in year seven. Group one, first, I showed them several i built it up as first showing them several examples of dividing by a half then dividing by a quarter yep. um and then and they were beginning to be like oh when it's divided by half it's the same as times by two i said mm, we'll say it's the same as times by two two over one and right or the children understood that and then for a quarter then i did a few for two thirds because that's quite easy to draw things like six divided by two thirds is quite easy to show because each one down yes. automatically and they were like oh then we did a bit of rolling a few of them by which i mean going like uh, four divided by a half, a half, one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three, three and a half, four. Right. Oh, that's eight. Uh, and we're writing all those up and then looking at the pattern. And they're like, oh, it's like the opposite of multiplying. You're times you by the denominator and divided. Or you, you know, and they were like basically you're saying like messy versions of it. And the, so that's not a world away of difference from other schools, I think, except that what then becomes really different. And this was specifically reserved for a class where I think they were, where I was like, this is going to work for lots of them. And like, uh, intellectually excite them is okay we've established there's a pattern and a pattern that makes sense now i'm going to tell you what that pattern is so not waiting for one kid to kind of not their fault mm. candidly describe oh is it that you have to like you know move it in your head and you do it actually by the denominator and then the numerator is on the you know nothing <laughs> um i don't ask that i say like, who thinks they can see the pattern Maybe for reasons I don't even fully understand, asking one kid just to see if it's interesting to see what have they perceived. Mostly feedback to me of how clearly have I exposed this so far on the board, and then saying, 
So the rule is we do this and then showing them the rule of keep flip change or keep and then stopping everything and saying, so this is the rule we always use. And now is what the face are saying. Now we're going to get really good and fast at it. And then I'll tell them the rule is keep the first, flip the other, change the times. So there's no bother. Make sure they can say it back to me lots of times so they know what the rule is. And they can say it and you know, try to make these poems where he can so they're memorable. And we would say it with more fun. Like, you know, I just said it to you in a dead voice. I say it with <laughs> enthusiasm to the children. Um, then I'll show several examples to make sure it's really clear to them how to keep the first, flip the other, change the times. So there's no bother. Um, before that, I would have already previewed the word reciprocal, and then I'll check that it's really clear. So we flip the other to get the reciprocals one. But you, know, when you and I divide, we don't. We might think multiply by reciprocal, but what we're really thinking is flip it. Yeah, well, um, absolutely. Which is fine. Like there's there's a gap between speaking and thinking with technical accuracy and then acting with technical accuracy. And I don't think we need to bog things down to be more complicated than they have to be in the actual moment of performance. Just like when you know when Andy Murray. Is, uh, taking a backhand shot he's not thinking deeply about trajectories he knows what it's going to do so he does it um, even though he might think about that when he's actually reflecting on his performance um, or explaining his performance to someone else so there's and then there would be after I know that they're very fluent with doing a few then I will show them with a more complex example why it was still true and if they're very confident with that group I showed them one fraction written over the other so it was a division multiplying both sides by the lower denominator to show that it was being cancelled out um, and simplified and now look we're being the numerator now the original value a has now because that has been multiplied on the top has now been the, that old denominator is now a multiple on the new a multiplier on the numerator and look the denominator is now simplified down to just that old numerator so that's why it's been dividing and explain that to, I mean it's hard to explain to you right now because I can't draw it but at the very end showing them the why and they're like, ah, oh. for some of them at that stage, just aren't that into that. But it doesn't matter because it's the end of the lesson. I'm not testing them on that. So the ones who found, find that really exciting and it's important to them for their satisfaction is math satisfaction, they get it. But saying to them at the start, that's what we're going to finish with and that will be really cool. So they know they're going to get it, that final bit of explanation. But it's begun with some pattern seen, so they know that it makes sense like this none of this is weird then very explicit instruction on the actual process yes. and how to do it and checking they can do it so everyone's experiencing procedural success including obviously you know uh, challenging examples varied examples and so on um and then concluding with the the more algebraic or generalized version of the why which just doesn't appeal to some children or it's not yet the right time for it to appeal to them like in year eight i've had kids say Miss, I can't remember why this works. Why do we flip? And then I'll show them again. Or often actually show them what they want is to see a few, like, I'll begin by first showing them with divide by a half in a diagram. They go, oh, yeah, cool, that's why. Thinking, that was actually an example, that's not why. Um, but there's <laughs> a, they've now reached satisfaction. So the, showing them more won't satiate them, and it will just take time that actually won't be learning for them because they're no longer curious. Um, with group four, I took totally the opposite approach of, I said, I'm going to show you how to divide it by a fraction. It's really, really hard. You're not going to understand what I'm doing. And I did two silent examples, and they're all like, you know, straining in their seats to tell me, oh, there's a thing that you flip it over. And I'm like, oh, you realized there's a poem for it. And then we do the poem. So it's highly procedural. And then we look at the pattern of why it works. Uh, not the pattern of why, the illustrative pattern with halves and quarters, because already they know they're really good. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're flipping it. Because, oh, yeah, the half becomes two, because you're actually going to times by, you know, and then they're, so they now have a, uh, like a foundation to build on of the procedure, whereas the other group, 
the foundation, the procedure stuck to was the pattern because the other group was much better at seeing patterns and holding patterns in their mind. So a decision based on my perception of their working memories, I guess. Got it. And I'm just just to wrap that up, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for for a second mm-hmm. here, Danny. Sure. Um, so I think there's two, there's there's two extremes here. So I think one extreme is the kind of mistake I've I've made. And look, the more people I talk to, the more I'm realizing how crap I am as a teacher here. That because I like again, I, I would always I would always start with the why, and I think really really carefully about the why. And for some, I think dividing fractions is a classic because the why is hard. Like the why for dividing by a half and a quarter is okay. But the why for dividing by something like three quarters, as you said, unless you pick a nice number to begin with, um, it can be really it can be really difficult for the kids. And there's a danger that if you if you emphasize that too much, it overcomplicates what for the vast majority of kids up till GCSE is essentially just a, a rule that they they learn. They don't know the why behind it anyway. So to play devil's advocate completely. I, I always now, having spoke to you, having spoke to, to, to Daisy as well, and spoke to Greg Ashman, I, I'm always now thinking um, about opportunity cost. So in the kind of 20 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever, where, where you've started that lesson, kind of almost doing an investigation that was never, ever going to lead to a formal proof. It was always <laughs> going to be about kind of pattern spotting and so on. How can you justify not spending those 15 minutes getting telling the kids the rule and spending an extra 15 minutes on practice, 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 so they are completely comfortable with it. They've transferred that procedure into long-term memory. You've shown them 15 more minutes of twists and stuff like that. They've practiced, practiced, practiced. Because, again, you, you've said yourself that at the end of the day, for some of those kids, they're just not into understanding why it works and the why is so difficult anyway. So why bother with the why at all? <laughs> Does that make sense? No, I totally understand. I think it's a really challenging and good question. One thing for you saying, um, the more you talk, the more you think you're a crap teacher. I suppose we could take the Dunning-Kruger effect to mean that means you've become much better teacher. <laughs> True, yes. Uh, yeah, let's the look on the bright side. Yourself, yeah. The better it shows you've become. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that. So you can take it as a, uh, <laughs> take it as a heartening thing. Because um, I feel the same too. Um, <laughs> so I try to take heart in that. Um, I think it's very, very um, challenging because... On the one hand, it leads to the conclusion of our goal is our is their success. So we are opportunity cost means they shouldn't spend time on the why. They don't even want to learn it. But of course, you could say kids don't even want to learn Shakespeare. So why are we teaching to them? So just what they want and uh, will enjoy and feel excited by is in, is a criteria that we know uh, or is a factor. Um, but it's a factor we can manipulate or use to our better or worse advantage. But I'd hate to think that I thought, okay, I've got group four. They're not really into the why, so and they don't need it, so I'm not going to teach them because we obviously we want to expect more of them as learners. We want to open them up to bigger worlds. I think about one of my colleagues in my first school. He was in bottom set in the worst school in Sheffield the entirety of the way through school. He got a D at GCSE somehow. Well, it was a bad school. They still let him do A-level maths because they couldn't <laughs> oh, fill the class. He's a maths teacher. He had a fully funded PhD in maths. Flipping so, it. Part of, and he was never given any of that interesting stuff all the way through school. And I think about him when I think when I look at the kids in that class, I think you could still become math teachers if you just keep work, if you work really, yes. really hard, of course. So I mustn't say this is not for you because this is the stuff that makes maths worthwhile and a worthwhile discipline. So but it's more recognizing, is it the right time for you to actually learn it? Like recognizing that for a lot of, for a lot of children, the why is the 
But for a lot of children, the why is the absolute hardest bit. And it's really hard to test them on it. It's really hard to check they've understood it. It's really hard to remember it. It is everything about it. The why is everything that's hard about maths. And it's also Um, the bit that puts a lot of kids off maths as well, right? That's that's the thing. Like it's, again, just to really push this to the limit for those kind of set four kids or group four kids that you're talking about there, Danny. Is there not a danger that emphasising the why makes them think flipping out maths is complicated? Whereas yes. spending that mm. time instead of doing the why, just showing them how good they can be at actually doing the skills. And I'm not saying I fully believe in this, but this is this mm. is just a dilemma I'm kind of having um, in my head. And, the, and it's keeping me awake at night, this. Just thinking, mm-hmm. am I not actually doing harm to the kids kind of development and confidence and so on by actually emphasizing the why when the chance of them getting it is not particularly high whereas the chance of them getting much much better at the skill and actually retaining the knowledge and being able to apply the knowledge not because understanding why i'm going to say something controversially Mm -hmm. and again people are going to tear me apart on twitter but after our last interview i'm I'm using this now so let's go for it Um, done for a penny done for a pound (laughs) exactly i'm going to argue that um for if you've got the vast majority of students um they're going to be more likely to transfer the knowledge the, the skill of dividing by fractions if they have done loads and loads and loads of examples, you've shown them loads and loads and loads of twists, they're going to be better prepared than if they haven't done as many examples, but they've got a half-baked idea of why dividing by fractions leads to kind of flipping over and changing the divide to times. So is it not the case that the why is often the thing that confuses the kids and removing the why is going to help them be more confident, have more knowledge, enjoy maths more even because they're more confident about it, because they're having more success and also aid their kind of ability to transfer that knowledge to different situations. Because I don't think them understanding why you do this with fractions is going to aid that. I don't think understanding why things work makes them any better. And something that I hint has been talking about is he's think he's, he's pondering if we, um, overuse not in our school in teaching in general in Britain overuse um, mistakes as a method of instruction so for example the classic thing is oh if we show the children the example a half out of half equals a qu- equals two over four it's obvious that doesn't make sense mm. we all use that example with the kids it doesn't make a blind bit of difference to them they, they can barely really they can barely even see that it doesn't make sense because they're like ah fractions are magic land and opposite land anyway <laughs> that could well make sense like for them the idea that a half is bigger than a quarter is already kind of weird because too small like or you know they kind of are okay with that one because they know what house and quarters look like because they picture a cake but the idea that a seventh is bigger than an eighth they're like well, if you say so, miss. I mean, they don't—they just don't really believe you because even if you try to be like, well, you know, one divided by seven is bigger than divided by eight. They're like, oh, dividing. I'm already not too co- too keen on this. So a lot of our efforts to even use more uh, simplistic ideas of the why, like showing the mistakes and like, oh, this couldn't make sense. We surely mm. need an LC. That doesn't seem to make any difference to the children. But the I, I, I mean, I'd be so interested to know, um, so I suppose if I see her, I must ask Daisy or contact Greg Ashman or someone who knows more, is I think for a lot of children, the the why, or I, th- I think we are still obliged to share the why with all the children and give them that opportunity to grasp it. But we need to be far more strategic and thoughtful about when we share it. And it's and my impression is the more the child struggles with abstract thought and the more the child struggles to bin, build mental schema or uh, generalize from examples, of, I guess I'm saying the weaker the child, the less likely the why is going to stick. By which I mean, by stick, I mean when I 
if I were to explain a phenomenon to you, uh, say a social phenomenon or really any phenomenon or mathematical idea or concept, you would, as someone who will, you know, was someone who quickly understands things, would say, oh, so is that why blah, blah, blah does blah, blah, right. blah. And you are immediately looking for examples to prove the rule. Um, and to test the rule and to check you've understood. And the way that we check we've understand conceptual things is through examples. Like Daisy's explained that in hers as well about how most things that are conceptual examples are how we build up our concepts. Yes. Like even though, even our understanding of definitions of words, um, like, uh, sneaky and sly are really different words. Could you actually give me a definition of either? No, you couldn't. But you know how to use them because you've seen sneaky and sly be used so many times that you've mm. you've come to understand through examples that they are different but similar and how to apply them. And there are some children, a small number of examples or uh, an abstract description, they will quickly start supplying themselves with examples to make sense of it and to check, like, oh, so is this an example of it? Oh, does this make sense? Or, oh, but I thought that this. And all those questions that we think of as, those are the questions smart kids ask, are questions reflecting the fact that they're giving themselves examples um, or they're, they're basically doing exercises in their head to test themselves and to check they've understood. Lots of children can't do that or don't yet have the nous to do it or actually just can't do it because their working memory is limited or their uh, say habits at learners i don't mean like in a guy cracks way i mean they're learning habits in that if i gave you something you'd immediately start testing it or you'd use little numbers or you know you have heuristics to test yourself with they lack all of those things so actually we need to do loads of examples and practice first just to give them a bedrock to stick ideas to because otherwise we're trying to teach them the definition of a word that they've never seen in a sentence is the equivalent Yes, I, th I think you're right. And uh, again, the, the thing that's, uh, as I explained in my takeaway from the end of Daisies, the the power of examples and the importance of examples mm -hmm. in teaching is just is something I've underestimated. It, it's the key for me. It's the key to teaching. Getting your examples right is the key. And just to be a bit of a bit controversially done, because <laughs> people accuse me of agreeing with everything my guests say and all that kind of stuff. The um, <laughs> So the, the the research I've read, and I'll, I'll link to it on the show notes, suggests that, um, and again, you can find research to agree with anything that you want and confirmation <laughs> bias and all that kind of stuff. But I'm obsessed with misconceptions. And um, a, a couple of papers that I'll cite suggest that um, you know, one of the best ways to, to convince kids um, to go against their incorrect intuition is to confront them with, with, with whether you call it, cognitive dissonance or cognitive conflict or whatever but con confront them with something that is wrong that conforms to their incorrect intuition but they can clearly see is wrong and then that primes them to be ready for your your explanation so you, you, your fraction one is classic that if you can convince them and the one i always use i always start with what's bigger a third or a fifth and that the kids tend to be pretty comfortable whether they were whether we draw two circles and we cut one into three and cut one into five yeah. it, it get the kids pretty happy a third's bigger bigger than a fifth then okay what what is one third plus one fifth obviously two over eight what's two over eight the same as one quarter and then we can clearly see that we've we've started with something that was a third we've added something to it and we've ended up with something smaller and i think once you can sh i would argue once you can show kids something that is clearly wrong they are much more susceptible then and much more willing to embrace you're then teaching of the actual correct way to do it because you've mm. shown them explicitly that their preconception is incorrect as opposed to saying look this is the right way to do it because why why have they got any incentive to believe you if that makes sense so i i, I think i still agree that 
showing kids their method is wrong in a way that they can see and appreciate is still a key tool of explicit instruction, if, if that makes sense. Mm. I think so. Uh, i be happy to hear as an example of some disagreement in your podcast. Yeah, this is all kicking off now. We were getting on so well over the last six is, hours. Um, <laughs> I think what you've described is that it is a very helpful tool for children's motivation. Um, and this will sound like the most unmechanical thing for their engagement in the sense of their intellectual engagement because it speaks their curiosity, like, oh, things are not what mm, I expected. Right. But my, I'm beginning to suspect that cognitive conflict doesn't aid understanding in the sense that the example you've just given with the fractions is actually mm. uh, very long to do. Yes, um, no, also relies true. on them accurately drawing. I mean, we've all seen children's pictures of a third yeah, where they've sure. drawn a circle, halved it, and then halved one of the halves and called that a third um, when actually they've shaded a quarter. And you can totally see why they've done that because actually they have to also hold on to the idea of all the parts being equal. They also have to be good at drawing, which is yes. it's very easy to have objects, but very hard to third them. But, but if we're doing uh, this as a whole class example, though, right? Oh, yeah. So if I'm oh, no. in full control of it. Oh, yeah. So that that's... um. But even then, a lot of the children will see you draw. Let's say even do like, okay, we'll use boxes. Boxes are easier. Yeah. For them, um, one third, draw three boxes, shade one in. Draw one fifth, draw five boxes, shade one in. These are the same. They're both a box. That even you actually need to have so much control over how they do it and what you're drawing. And mm. they might not see how much is you've implicitly done unless you have to start going down the whole tangent of, and obviously the boxes are the same because it's a fraction of a proportion or a fraction is a proportion of a whole. So the two holes have been, you know, you're getting yes. really lost really quickly. So I'm saying this purely um, not. Uh, in a contrary sense in that I think it is useful for creating that motivation if and only if it is just really patently obvious to them that they are wrong. I don't mean obvious like you're screaming, you're a fool kid. I mean obvious in the sense of that they almost unaided can experience surprise at what they've seen. If they're needing you to show them that it is surprising or you have to so carefully set them up for that surprise that they'd have never done that, had that experience of surprise via their own drawings, for example, then it mightn't succeed. So they'll be like, well, this has only happened because you made me draw the boxes this way, like, for example, or something like that. So I think it... um. It works. I think it works very well with borrowing, where um, Don Stewart puts a lovely example on his website, where ah, you yes. get a question where the, 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 the difference ends up being bigger than either of the numbers, and that's a lovely example that he gives. Um, I've forgotten what it was. So I think it's something like 111 take 99. They end up getting 188, and it's like, that doesn't make sense, you know, because they do difference, difference. Yes. Um, and that's great, because then they're like, huh? So, but even then, that almost only works if you then rewrite it out as 111 minus 99 equals 108. Because even if they're learning subtraction, the whole subtraction that's that's the kind of mystery box when it's in that algorithm and form, and they mightn't even notice it there if they're learning something so simple as that. Yes. So it still has to be so blindingly obvious to them. And even then, I think it only aids them in their curiosity and their desire to become successful. And I'm not sure it makes them better at understanding anything, um, which is a very new thing that I'm considering. So I've always been sure that. Uh, mistakes are a really key part of instruction um, and the reason that I'm beginning to open my mind to potentially they're not is thinking every time I've shown them mistakes it's not made them any better um, the mistakes aren't obviously wrong to them they're just obviously wrong to me because I'm good at it and particularly because Engelman's uh, or the, it works for very bright children uh, Engelman's connecting math concept books the, the direct instruction books in the sense that they're actually scripted books he never uses mistakes and his mm. program has extraordinary success rates yes. with the weakest children both what I've experienced in my current school my last school and I mean, the reason he can charge so much for it is it is really successful and he never uses um, mistakes 
he only guides them very, very carefully through slow build-up of difficulty over time so that they become almost like effortlessly good at it. Um, and they just build up instincts on how to do things, not instincts, reflexes on how to do things. So that's why I'm not saying I disagree with you. It's more that I think that I thought it was obviously what you were saying, yes. but now I'm thinking maybe it's much more, either much more complicated or our intuition maybe has been backwards. So I'm all saying I can't tell yet. <laughs> no, I think you're right. And to be honest with you, this this fits in well because I um, Bruno Reddy um, uh, he visited our school um, oh, cool. just a, a, a couple of weeks ago, and I was just having a conversation with him about this this very thing. And he's he's very much into examples and non-examples being important mm -hmm. when it comes to definitions of things so if you're saying what is a polygon yeah. there's no point just showing kids examples yes. of polygons you need to show them examples of non-polygons for, for them to fully yeah. appreciate the concept yeah. but then he himself and it's only just striking me now danny he then made the point that you don't do non-examples for procedures you do non-examples yes. for the definitions but not non-examples for procedures and i'm wondering whether then now i'm hearing two people who i respect uh, tremendously <laughs> both saying this i'm now questioning myself which i guess is the whole purpose of, of having these conversations so yeah, yeah. i'm going to go away and, and think about this now whether yeah i don't know the conclusion i mean maybe chris you could maybe ask chris to do more research on it before you interview yeah him. flipping heck, that, that could be a that could be a 13 hour epic that yeah, <laughs> well that's perfect that's perfect well danny uh, to wrap things up because this is yeah this has been another another epic um and just my final <laughs> thing i just want to ask you is is your big three so um i'll put links yeah. to these on the show notes but what, what websites, blog posts, or whatever you want, would you uh, recommend our listeners check out? Oh, gosh. So I suppose there are two sides where I, I suppose I've grown most as practitioner, which would be in what I'm actually teaching the kids, like changing the curriculum I'm doing, and then how I convey it to them, like my beliefs as a teacher. So in terms of the things that really affect and drive what we teach the children are probably... Don Stewart's website, um, Median, which is yes. just so amazing. And he, I mean, I'm sure people, off, you know, I'm sure many people have referenced, I think people, many people have referenced him because he's, he's so generous with what he offers and it's of such high quality and it's so challenging. It's ridiculous how good that yeah. website is. Ridiculous. And we try to, one of the rules we have in our mind is we've only taught this unit well enough if a child who's worked hard can do all the Don Stewart questions. Of it. <laughs> nice, but I like we try it. to set that as that's the bar we have in our head. Because we think for us as teachers, we find these a satisfying pitch of challenge and intriguing. So we need to make sure the children have been set up for that pitch of challenge on that on that topic. Uh, so he's almost useful as a like intellectual benchmark. <laughs> that's um, nice. Because like that. he is planning for that those key stages. The other one is the UKMT. We found it's a really, really rich resource is all their past papers. I mean it's, it can be worth just buying one of the books of all the past papers because it it's because it's slightly different to and in some ways harder than GCSE or SATs because it's to do those questions, you have to just really understand things. We think, for example, we'll comb through every place value question or every question where you have to say multiply or every question where you use angles. And again, we'll think we've only really taught angles properly if they can do every UKMT question on angles. Because yes. the UKMT will still be pitched to a certain age group. We think, yeah. why are your rates can't do every junior question on angles? Or the reason they can't do it is because we haven't taught it. We've not taught it well enough. So again, it acts both as a, as a source of really exciting examples, particularly we're trying to make challenging and varied examples and then to make more challenging interesting questions for them to do um, for us to really up our game on our instruction or examples to the children. And then the last one is almost not the opposite end is David Rayner's textbooks. I mean, you can get the old ones so cheaply on Amazon, the ones that are um, out of date now, but the quality is still really high. David Rayner's books are just so great for having 
loads of questions and he's really thought about all the forms that questions can take. So it's just textbooks, but they really drive me thinking uh, it is just a lesson on dividing decimals. And I look at his and it'll make me think, okay, oh God, of course, is that way that they might have to do it? Oh, that's the form the question can take. And he's just thought about the varied. So he's not thinking about it in the same kind of creative form that Don Stewart or UKMT are thinking, but thinking about it in the like presentational sense. His books are really, really helpful. And it doesn't have to be the modern ones. It can be any old one, any old ones. But it really helps me think, oh, of course, it's that way the equation can be written. Oh, there's that way the substitution can be done. Of course, things that are implicitly obvious for us as teachers, but aren't obvious to children. So that really helps me up my game when I'm planning things for them. And then on the other side of beliefs, I suppose, Daisy's books, particularly Seven Myths, uh, Robert Peel's book, um, uh, oh my God, progressively worse. And uh, funnily, of course, uh, uh, Teach Like a Champion. And I think they've all really shaped my belief in realising that the way things are can be changed, all for different ways. Like Robert's book makes you realise how many of things in school that just seem normal have actually evolved to be where they are and aren't inevitable. Uh, and Daisy's book, Seven Myths, again, makes you see the things have evolved to where they are and don't have to be that way. And the Moz book, or Teacher Like a Champion, even though it's almost such an obvious thing to say or might be seen as a PhD book, makes you realise that high expectations is a learnable skill, that high expectations isn't just something you have, it's something you show, and it's through your repeated actions that you consciously do that you change what you're conveying to the children. And I think that's what I see as really powerful about his book. So even if you don't believe in everything about... Um, that model of behaviorism, realizing that high expectations is something you do every day through tiny actions, not through just like, oh, I believe in the kids, is something you model relentlessly. That that book really shows that. That's uh, what a wonderful selection there, uh, Danny. And I'll link to all those uh, in the show notes. Um, well, we've, we've come to the end of, of part two. I'm not ruling out some part, point in the future, part oh. three, four, and five. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll get results. Who knows? I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it'll come to uh, August 2019 and you'll want to call me and be like, so, your rubbish results. <laughs> 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 um, have, and I can eat humble pie and talk about all our mistakes that I've realized. Um, <laughs> but I've, well, it's just, honestly, uh, Danny, it's been absolutely fascinating, this. I've, I've, I've loved every minute of it. Um, we've <laughs> talked now for... Pro- coming on six hours um and i've still i'm looking here and i've still maybe used 25 percent of the questions i oh wanted to ask you it's been it's, it's just been absolutely fascinating so well, it just you... shows how interesting maths is i love being a math oh, abso- we're so lucky aren't we <laughs> we are uh, we are in- incredibly lucky and again I'll, I'll reflect more on michael and stuff in my takeaway at, at the end of the episode but i think for me the kind of overriding message that i'm getting through and I, i'm probably overgeneralizing ridiculously here um is that kind of Michaela believes things can be changed. This is the kind of message I, I'm, I'm getting through from this, that that's why you kind of instill and make explicit the competition, because as you stated, you believe kind of uh, abilities correlated, uh, sorry, performance in those tests and the learning is, is correlated positively with the effort that the kids mm-hmm. put in. So mm-hmm. you make that competition explicit because you believe that that can be changed. And even even the stuff we talked about at the start of this episode, which I, which I, I, I didn't see coming at all, just the, the kind of internal scrutiny that's going on with the staff because you believe your teacher can be better and and even looking at how uh, that that class of um students behave for you compared to another teacher and you putting that on you because you think if you can change it can be better and i just think that that regardless of what people think of, of michaela i think that that's a positive message that 
things can be changed you know mm-hmm. and you know we can we can agree and disagree on how that's done but i think that's a that's a, a really really positive message that I, i've certainly taken from that and i'll tell you what danny the, the final thing to say is it's it's been worth being told to uh, to go to hell twice on twitter um, <laughs> speaking to you here so yeah i've been told that 20 times if it oh, mean dear. we could keep talking so i've loved every minute so danny quinn thank you so much thank for you time. so much So there you have it. There was part two of my interview with Danny Quinn, the head of maths at Michaela Community School. I absolutely love talking to Danny. She's someone who's passionate, who's well-informed, and she flipping makes you think. And indeed, I have not stopped thinking since our interview. And in this takeaway section, I just want to focus on two things that have just been buzzing around in my head. And I I hope I can convey my thoughts relatively coherently here. Um, The first is I want to return to this idea of teaching the how before the why. Now, whenever I've been... uh, teaching over the last 12 years, I have always taught the why first. I have always tried to introduce something, a new concept, with explaining why it works. That was always my kind of go-to gambit. So when I'm uh, teaching Pythagoras, I'll I'll start with a proof. When I'm teaching um, angle facts, I'll try and convince students why it works first, and then we'll go into the how, then we'll practice, practice, practice. And my my logic was, if you don't do that, then math just becomes a series of disconnected rules that kids have to remember. And that's when kids start saying, what's the point in this? Why why am I even doing this? I can't remember this. And and surely that's when kids start misremembering and muddling up related concepts, such as area and perimeter. If they don't understand why, then they're going to struggle with the how. That's what I used to think. But but now now I'm struggling with that because having having listened to Danny um, when she spoke, particularly in part one about about angle facts, about how just telling the kids that angles on a straight line are 180 degrees in year seven and using that as a way to practice number bonds and mental arithmetic and so on, almost with the teaser that, all right, we're going to do the why. We're going to do the why it works in year eight or year nine. And Danny explained it that by the time they meet the why, they're more ready for it. They're confident. They've got a a love and a joy for angle facts. They feel able to cope with it and they're eager to find out the why. And it really got me thinking that how many times have I introduced why something works and the kids have actually understood or appreciated that. I mean, t- take Pythagoras, for example. Flipping egg, as any child I've ever taught, ever understood the proof for Pythagoras. And, and Pythagoras isn't a unique one um, in that. Anytime I've ever tried to tell kids why something works and then teach them how, I think I end up kind of compromising both. The kids don't understand why, and it confuses them, knocks their confidence, which means that they're less likely to understand how it works. And look, I, I'm kind of hearing my own voice saying this, and I'm almost hating myself for it because I've had Ed Southall on the, on the podcast, and he's uh, he's brought a book out all about teaching kids why things work in mathematics, and it's an absolutely wonderful book. But as I say, you, you've got to kind of question these things, and I think, as Danny said, pattern spotting is is a, is quite a nice compromise for this, but I don't think it's perfect. So. Um, yeah, take for example any kind of thing where you, where you where you'd introduce the how first, um, and so say take it's rules of indices or something like that. If you get kids to pattern spot, work the way through spotting patterns, spotting patterns, spotting patterns, and then you use that as a almost way to introduce how you do something. My question there is what. Well, 
what's the point? Like, what? Why are we getting the kids to pattern spot? Because it's not a proof. It's never a proof. It never understand. It never explains why. So if we're getting kids, let's take Pythagoras. If we're getting kids to spot that when you sum um, the squares of the two other sides, it equals the the square of the hypotenuse. They spot that pattern. Do they understand why? No. Is it a proof of Pythagoras? No, it's not. Will it help them remember the formula better? Possibly, possibly, but let's think about the opportunity cost. Instead of spending that 10, 15 minutes doing this kind of pattern spotting activity, where you also run the risk of them not spotting the pattern, so potentially building in extra misconceptions and confusions in there, plus building the fact that even if they spot the pattern, you're going to probably going to need to articulate it in a different way so that more kids explain it and so on. That is a process that's potentially going to take 15, 20 minutes. How can you justify doing that as opposed to saying to kids, all right, this is Pythagoras' theorem. This is how it works, doing some beautifully well-planned worked examples in the way I spoke with Greg Ashman about split pairs. I do one on the left. You have a similar related problem on the right going through that. They've had 15, 20 minutes of extra clear, unambiguous explanation and practice. And then they're away they go. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, that's flipping boring. How are kids going to be motivated and engaged? Well, the, the evidence suggests the one thing that motivates kids above everything else is success and specifically their, their interpretation of their own mathematical ability, their self-efficacy. So which way is going to lead them to be more motivated that way? Kind of looking around trying to spot this pattern or being told exactly clearly how to do something and having the opportunity to practice and get better and better and better. And then we go to this whole thing about maths being an, a, a load of um, disconnected rules. Of course it is, if it's presented um, in a specific way. But if kids are allowed to get comfortable, really, really comfortable and fluent at a rule such as Pythagoras, um, such as finding the hypotenuse and then finding the non-hypotenuse, get that so it's embedded in long-term memory. And then the connections can come later on to all the different areas of mathematics. I think the fluency needs to come first. But look, I am, I genuinely mean this, I'm genuinely hating myself for, for even questioning this. And I'm not saying I'm fully sold on the idea. And I'm not saying, at least I don't think I'm saying, that you should never try and justify why something's the case and avoid proofs and all that kind of stuff. I think I'm just saying that I am more open to the opportunity now of teaching how something works first and saying to the kids, look, I'm going to teach you this. We are going to get absolutely flipping brilliant at doing this. And once we're brilliant, then we're going to look why this works. Because until kids are brilliant at it, they don't have the confidence. And maybe they don't even have the vocabulary or the holistic knowledge of the concepts to appreciate the why. So you end up starting with the why first. They don't understand the why and they still can't flip and do it. Well, let's get them good at doing it and then let's get them primed and ready for the why so that's that one as i say i would welcome thoughts on this i'm not sold on this idea as i say i don't know if i'll be able to sleep at night here having said that um possibly i'm going to teach the how before the why but that's what i'm pondering at the moment and the second thing i just wanted to mention in this takeaway is this um, when it was all kicking off between me and danny about this um showing kids um examples of incorrect procedures now just to kind of clarify and um, where my thoughts have, have gone on this 
So um, Bruno Reddy, as I mentioned uh, in the interview with Danny, uh, visited our school um, just for a, a meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I took the opportunity just to chat to him about mathematics. I mean, you got Bruno there, what, why wouldn't you? So we started talking about non-examples, and I'm a bit obsessed with non-examples at the moment. Um, and certainly when you're introducing the definition of something, whether it be the definition of a polygon, that seems to be a kind of a classic go-to one, or or um, it, it really helps kids understand the entire concept if you give them non-examples along with the examples because you could give kids every example in the world and they won't be able to form a complete definition unless they've also got non-examples that they can discount and as I say polygons is a classic way of doing it you show kids a load of polygons and then you show them kids shapes that have curved edges or open sides and you get get it clear in the heads that they are not polygons. And going back to what I said with um, with Daisy, um, it's those choices of examples that are probably going to mean more to kids and they're understanding more than a well-chosen definition. Because definitions have to be so technical um, often and use technical language that it's um, kids often don't understand them. Whereas if you present them with examples versus non-examples, it makes it a lot more easy. So fine, every everything well and good there. So I've kind of taken that to, to the next level and um, I quoted some research um, for, uh, in the last last uh, podcast. Um, it was a research paper, how do I get my students over their alternate conceptions? And it's on my on my research page at mrbartonmaths.com forward slash teachers forward slash research. Um, and that suggests that for procedures, um, so not just definitions, but for procedures, it's good to confront kids with the misconceptions. And I gave the example of, of adding fractions um, in the podcast with Danny. And Danny quite rightly um, picked up on the point that um, she questions this, as it's great to question everything, and argues that if kids don't fully um, understand the concepts, they're not going to fully appreciate that the incorrect procedure is incorrect and why it's incorrect. Um, and hence, they're not—they're not going to benefit from it in any way. And it's best just to show kids correct procedures. Now, I agree with that to a certain extent. I agree that it is potentially dangerous showing kids incorrect procedures in early skill acquisition phase. So, when you're teaching adding fractions for the first time, it is potentially dangerous to show kids an incorrect way of adding fractions as a means to then show them the correct way. It's not as clear cut as showing examples versus non-examples. Procedures, non-procedures don't work in quite, in quite that same way. However, Danny said that she believes that kids don't grasp the full um, all the aspects of the of the example that I was given with the uh, one third plus one fifth, and hence it gets confusing and so on. So my argument is this: I still think incorrect procedures have an important part to play. I still think if you can show children an incorrect procedure, and crucially, they appreciate why it is incorrect and can see from the sel- themselves why it is incorrect. I think that is an important learning point. I don't think it just causes them to go, oh, that's interesting, but then not actually take anything away from it. If they can fully appreciate it, I think it can be a powerful learning point. But to fully appreciate it, they've got to understand all the concepts involved. So if we take my fraction example, one third plus one fifth equals two eighths. Two eighths is a quarter. Well, that can't be right because a quarter is smaller than one third. Now, that's a lot for kids to take in. So they've got to be able to order fractions. They've got to understand equivalence of fractions. And maybe they've got to see it in a diagrammatical way or something like that. But 
I would argue that by the time kids are um, at the stage where they're adding fractions, hopefully they've got all that in place. And I would test whether that's in place because I will be doing diagnostic questions at the start or I will be doing discussions at the start. And if um, I got the kids to the point where they could appreciate that two eighths was equal to a quarter and that a quarter was in fact smaller than a third, then I think they're ready. I think they're ready to see that incorrect procedure, to understand that it's incorrect, maybe to write in their own words why it's incorrect. We have a discussion about why it's incorrect and then we'll go into the correct procedure. Because it goes back to Daisy's point. Daisy said a wonderful thing. Can you truly understand a topic or a concept without also understanding the misconceptions that go along with it? And I don't think you can, but I concede it is risky. I concede that if kids have incomplete knowledge of the components that make up the incorrect procedure, you could potentially be heading for a bit of trouble. And in those circumstances, it is definitely the case, I believe anyway, that you should teach kids correct procedures and leave the incorrect procedures off the table until their competence has, has, has gone up. So there you go. As I say, I'm not sure I articulated either of those things uh, uh, in a way that was uh, comprehensible because I don't even have a flipping clue myself what, what I really think about them. But they're just two things that I'm thinking. And it was nice what Danny said as well. I think she was uh, being more kind than, than honest when I said that the, uh, the, more I, the more I speak to people and the more I read, the more I realise that I'm a little bit crap and the, the less I understand. Um, and she, she's linked it to the Dunning-Kruger effect. But it is honestly the case, like I am questioning so much of the stuff that I've always thought was gospel and I'm trying to find the research on it, but often the research contradicts each other and all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying my best to get to the bottom of it and hopefully you don't mind me kind of sharing my airy-fairy muddled up thoughts, particularly in these takeaways. And hopefully my guests and my future guests don't mind me priming them for their expertise because I need some help on all this stuff. Anyway. That's brought us to the to the end of a, another episode. I really hope you enjoyed that one. I, as I say, I, I have a ball with these interviews. I flipping love speaking to these. These are some of my mathematical heroes. So um, hopefully you took took as much out of it as I did. Got some absolutely wonderful guests uh, lined up over the next few episodes. So um, all that remains for me to do is once again thank my guest for the second time, Danny Quinn. Absolutely a fantastic guest. Uh, Podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And possibly above all... Um, you my loyal listener for, for keeping listening and i'm sorry for my kind of mini little rant at the start of this podcast um i've received some wonderful kind comments and reviews and all that kind of stuff and it, it means the world to me so thank you for listening thank you for spreading the world um and i shall see you for another episode in the near future so take care of yourselves thanks so much for listening and bye for now